Today's episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Philadelphia. Philadelphia, there's just ghosts everywhere, man. Under the outdoor with the steamboats, ancient goblins and wild lows. Come at the grand light, making a sound. The smell of death is on the rail. And at night when the cold Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, 1988's Beetlejuice and 1999's The Sixth Sense. Before we begin, though, let's start with Slash Cards. We're going to do some trivia questions. Kelsey, what do you have for me? What famously foul-mouthed playwright penned the script for Ridley Scott's 2001's Hannibal? Famously foul-mouthed playwright. I picked that because he's foul-mouthed, just like one of our characters is. I have no idea. <laughs> David Mamet. Oh, uh, you know what? I should. I, that was immediately what I was thinking of. But I was like, there's no way that Mamet wrote that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> what do we know him from? He is a very, very famous playwright. David Mamet wrote the screenplays for The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Glengarry Glen Ross, Wag the Dog, Ronin, State and Maine. That's the one where they're in a small town making a movie. And it has Alec Baldwin in it. Ha! And, of course, Hannibal, among others. Wait, isn't Alec Baldwin in Glengarry Glen Ross, too? Yes, he is. He is the Coffees for Closers guy. The Always Be Closing guy. So I should have known it, and I'm a little bit surprised, because he's not known for being a horror movie writer. But there you go. That was uh, Hannibal, written by David Mamet. My question for you is... A family on their way to California has car trouble in the Nevada desert and encounters a clan of murderous hill people in this 1977 film. They really shouldn't have the word hill in there. I knew it was I agree. <laughs> the hills have eyes. That is correct. I've never actually seen the original. I've only seen the 2000s remake. Really? Mm -hmm. Maybe we do a double feature on the hills have eyes. I could do that. <laughs> All right, Kelsey, let's get right into 1988's Beetlejuice. Real quick, though, what is the premise of Beetlejuice? You should, I mean, seriously, guys, you should know this already. We're going through the motions here. But if you don't know it, I implore you, <laughs> when we take a break here, watch Beetlejuice. For the love of God, mm -hmm. watch the movie. <laughs> All right, Kelsey, what, what's the premise? It is about... A couple who die at the very beginning of the film, they become ghosts, and they are in a haunting situation, so they're stuck inside their home. But unfortunately for them, a family moves in that is basically the exact opposite of who they were when they were alive. So they do all these different things to try and get rid of them, and one of those things is bringing back this ancient ghost who can supposedly get rid of people for He's you. He's a bio-exorcist, as he puts it himself. Yes. 
But during this whole story, they become friends with the daughter of the couple that moves in and they change their minds and they decide to let them live there. But they've already let the character Beetlejuice kind of out of his prison-like existence. existence. <laughs> it's, a it's a little convoluted when you actually sit down and think about the mechanics of the story. It's very convoluted. And we'll get into the, the backstory behind how the actual script was written and how it started out uh it, if you you haven't gathered already if you haven't seen the movie what are you doing um it is a comedy but it's a comedy horror absolutely especially if you're a kid when you see it this movie's really scary if you're yeah a kid. oh totally yeah so again watch it if you haven't if you have watch it again it's just that good <laughs> And when we come back, we'll talk about 1988's Beetlejuice. From the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. When two ghosts can't talk the living into leaving their house. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? They call the ghost... Beetlejuice! ...with the most... Yeah. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Ah. This is amazing. Michael Keaton... <laughs> is a ghost called Beetlejuice. And the ghost with the most did. Rated PG. Starts Wednesday, March 30th at a theater near you. Kelsey. Yes. What actually happens in Beetlejuice? Walk us through the story. <laughs> well, when we first open, we get a shot of a model and we get the lovely music from Danny Elfman. And so this movie is made by Tim Burton. And if you don't know... Tim Burton and Danny Elfman kind of do everything together. Yes. Danny Elfman. Okay, this, you watch the intro to this and you hear the theme. It will give you a very clear indication of Danny Elfman's signature style. There is a, it must be like Funny or Die or a sketch from somewhere about how Tim Burton makes a movie and he gathers together all the people he uses to make everything and all of his signature styles and one of those people is Danny Elfman and he's like, ah, oh, the theme can be like Okay, so the credits are done Music kicks in Danny Elfman, what have you got? That is very, very Danny Elfman. If you didn't know, he obviously did the theme to this uh, and a lot of other uh, Basically, Tim Burton any, movies. I mean, I can't think of any Tim Burton movies that he didn't do. There's the one or two, before. but you'll also, of course, know him from the Simpsons theme which you can totally feel in the theme to this one, and the Batman theme, which is used for the opening credits which for also Batman the Animated Burton. Series. Oh. oh, uh, oh okay. Well, it's both. Yeah. So it's both the movie by Tim Burton and the animated series. Uh, he is prolific. He also did the music and the singing voice of Jack Skellington what in Nightmare Before Christmas. What might people know him from? They might know him from the Knights of Oingo Boingo. <laughs> Uh, Oingo Boingo, who is a, a great band, who are a great band. We actually saw Danny Elfman and Catherine O'Hara perform live on stage at the Hollywood Bowl when they did a live performance of Nightmare Before Christmas. 
one of the most amazing nights. Oh, it was ever. so great. So they play they play the movie and whenever there's a song, they have a they have a band there and they get all the original actors to sing the roles live. And it was really really impressive. We got to see the original uh, Oogie Boogie and Pee Wee Herman. That's another Tim Burton movie that Danny Elfman worked on. He was there. And who would we have gotten to see if he had still been living from this movie? Otho? Yeah. Yeah. Otho played the voice of May- of the mayor. And if he had, uh, they, they said on stage, if he was still alive, he definitely would have been there because he loves this. He loved this stuff, apparently. Yeah. One of the cool things about getting to go to that performance was it was literally the first time in 20 years that Danny Elfman performed Dead Man's Party, which is an Oingo Boingo song. And that was... Arguably their most famous song. Yeah. That was incredible. It was, uh, I'm so glad we got to do that. That was really cool. D- Danny Elfman is great, but he definitely has a very signature style. It is always readily identifiable, kind of like John Williams, but in a more uh, playful way. <laughs> so we open over this model version of a town. And this is how we get to meet the Maitlands. <laughs> yes. Um, Who are? Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. Yes. Which, looking back on it... Professional archer Gina Davis. Yeah, looking back on it, it's bizarre just because of who we know them to be now. Yeah. Right? But back then, they were just actors. But, like, Alec Baldwin has such an interesting persona in real life. Yeah. And he's done so many different things. Like, he does all the Wes Anderson movies, but at the same time, he was on 30 Rock. Whereas Gina Davis... Now, I would assume that most people wouldn't know her name, which is sad. Yeah. Because she was a great actress, and she's really pretty. Yeah. And I don't know how she faded into obscurity, but... She stopped acting. Yeah. Like, literally, she started... She started... Doesn't she do, like, fundraisers and charity and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. But she, she... No joke, when I say professional archer, she started archery, and she actually made it to the Olympic qualifiers for the United States. She didn't actually go to the Olympics, but like that's how good an archer that she is. Is she almost went to the Olympics? She also became an outstanding uh, baseball player after doing a league of their own, where she didn't play baseball at all before that, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. She had never played baseball, and then she did a league of their own, and she wanted to learn how to play. She was like, "I'm not going to let some random person play for me. I'm going to do it myself." Yeah, uh, interestingly, this is potentially apocryphal. There's two apocryphal things we got here with Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin. But Linda Blair, who played Reagan in The Exorcist, was up for the role of Lydia in this movie. Uh, she didn't get it. There are a lot of people that were up for the role. Actually, the final two were between... Wouldn't she have been too old at this point? Or some other role, I'm not entirely certain. The actual role was actually between Winona Ryder, who actually got the role, and Alyssa Milano, by all accounts. Why do I know that name? Uh, Alyssa Milano, you might know her from Charmed. I know her from Who's the Boss. I never watched Charmed. I know Sam I know it was Who's a thing, but I didn't watch it, so. All right, then. <laughs> Would I not know her from anything else? <laughs> not particularly. She was in Poison Ivy. I never saw the, that. The, se- the sequel to Poison that. Ivy, I think, actually, because Poison Ivy originally starred. Wasn't Alicia Silverstone? Yeah. I wanted to see that, but I never saw it. <laughs> anyway. Um, I'm getting to a point here. Linda Blair was up for a role in this movie. She didn't get it. Gina Davis is actually in 
the Exorcist TV show. So that's... Yeah, we need to watch that. I think so. I've always heard it's good. And then Alec Baldwin apparently claims that he hates this movie, not because of the movie, but because he really dislikes his performance in it. He thinks he could have done a lot better. So it's his least favorite of his movies. Did you find clarification on that? Like, did you find where that in, that came from in the interview? No, that's why I'm saying it's potentially apocryphal. Okay. Uh, and then alternatively, Michael Keaton says that it is his favorite of his movies. As it should be. He's right. outstanding in this. But he's only in like 18, 17, 18 minutes of the total runtime of the movie. But that doesn't matter because when you think about Beetlejuice, that's who you think of. Right. Absolutely. It's kind of like Silence of the Lambs and Anthony Hopkins. You know, he's not actually in all that much of the movie, but he's totally one of the... He won a Best Actor Academy Award for it, right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Academy Awards, I know we're really getting off track here. It won the Academy Award for Best Makeup and Best Visual Effects and Makeup at the British Academy Film Awards. I was going to say, for the Academy Awards? Yeah, no, it just won Best Makeup at at the 61st Academy Awards. Because that's some pretty impressive makeup in this movie. But it has a lot of really high caliber actors and really high caliber production. Considering they had like a $1 million special effects budget... So Tim Burton himself in the book Burton on Burton. <laughs> yes, there is a book called Burton on Burton. It's like an autobiography, kind of. It's more about like the movies he made and stuff. We kind of feel the same way about Tim Burton that we feel about Stephen King. Yeah. We absolutely love him, but we also kind of hate him yeah. <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> he, I'd like... There is a definite line. I'd have to look at his filmography, but there is a definite line where it's like, oh, from here on out, your movies suck. Basically anything after 1999. And actually, I know some of my friends who would definitely put up an argument against that. But I'm sorry I like Sleepy Hollow. So yeah, fuck y'all. Sleepy <laughs> Hollow is good. Another movie. Uh, God, the connections abound. <laughs> Another movie uh, that has Jeffrey Jones in it, which... In 2002, in 2002, Jeffrey Jones was caught hiring a 14-year-old boy to take sexually explicit photos, and then they found a lot of child pornography on his person or in his house. And so he pled guilty or no contest to the felony charge. And so now he's on the sex offender registry. Hooray, Jeffrey Jones. That will forever taint my impression of every movie that you are in. Oh, yeah. I, you, I can't watch a movie with him in it without being, like, just kind of irked. I know. I used to love Howard the Duck, but now no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was getting to a point. The point being that in Burton on Burton, he is actually quoted as saying that he he wanted to, to make it, like, a very B-movie style that's why when you're at the at the level of the miniatures, you got the the egg crate foam and cardboard, and it looks kind of cheesy. It's supposed to. He wanted to evoke B movies, and to quote him, "I wanted to make them look cheap and purposefully fake looking." So if you're like, nah, I don't know about the quality of these effects, it's like, no, that's totally intentional because they didn't have a lot of money to work with, and it would give it an element of style. And uh, it absolutely worked. This movie is gorgeous. And you can definitely see some really early Tim Burton style that you would 
you'd see really clearly in a movie he didn't direct, but he did produce Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, I mean... Like The Sandworm, for instance. Once you've seen his oeuvre of films, you definitely... And and it's right there from the get-go. I mean, what's his first movie? Is it Pee Wee Herman? Yeah, his first, like, full-length motion picture, like, not made for TV, was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's all, it starts there, and then it's just every single thing he's ever done since then. He has a very specific visual style, which is actually probably part of the reason why I don't enjoy his movies so much anymore because he never tests his boundaries. He never tries anything really very new, which is weird because everyone would think that like, oh, Tim Burton, his stuff is so weird and out there. But even that can get stale. You've got to do different things with your visual effects. You've got to try different colors, different schemes, different ideas. And he doesn't. He does the same stuff over and over again. And, And it's getting really manufactured. When he gets a really, really big budget, it's dumb like if you look at the uh, alice in wonderland movies just ugh. so it starts with Wee's big adventure then beetlejuice then batman then edward scissorhands then batman returns then edward like just in a row hit after hit after hit just fantastic movies uh, then we get mars attacks which is really controversial because a lot of people hate it some people really like it i'm kind of middling on it I think it's just kind of boring, to be honest. Yeah, not a lot really happens. It's just a lot of the Martians running around killing people. It's just kind of boring. Then comes Sleepy Hollow, which is surprisingly good. Yeah. And has Johnny Depp in it, who's not in this movie, but, you know. Pretty much in everything else. Johnny Depp was in Nightmare on Elm Street with Heather Langenkamp, who was also up for the role of Lydia. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. Then... Planet of the Apes. And that's where everything fell apart. Hilariously, Kevin Smith, now hear me out. (laughs) Even if you don't like Kevin Smith, he does really, really good speaking appearances. Like he goes to a lot of colleges and he just answers questions and tells stories. He's a really good live storyteller. And he tells this story... Well, he tells a bunch of really good stories, but one of them is talking about how Tim Burton was accused of stealing something from a Jane Silent Bob comic book, which is monkeys taking Lincoln's head off of his monument, the Lincoln Memorial, and and putting a monkey head on top of it in its place. And people are always said to Tim Burton, did you take your ending of Planet of the Apes from Kevin Smith's comic book? And he said, totally unaware of himself he said uh, anyone who knows me knows i don't read comic books and kevin smith's comment to that is oh well then that explains batman <laughs> it said when asked for comment tim burton said anybody that knows me knows that i would never read a comic book which to me explains fucking batman <laughs> Batman is really not Batman. It's it's this weird hybrid of Tim Burton, the comic books, and the 66 series. Yeah, I I think that story is very funny, and we're huge Kevin Smith fans. So we side with Kevin Smith on this. But I'm sorry, because Batman's an awesome movie. Batman's incredible, but the (laughs) the point is, it's not really an adaptation of the comic books. 
it's a new thing and it's a great style and it's a great thing, but it's not an adaptation. Of we context. also just ruined a movie that we are not talking about by giving telling you the ending. But here's the thing about that. Planet of the Apes is awful. Do not see it. Yeah, don't even bother seeing it. <laughs> uh, and then after Planet of the Apes is Big Fish, which I actually kind of like. A lot of people like it. I don't. Which is fine. I, I don't take offense to people not liking it. I totally get it. And then Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is an inferior remake yeah. and re-adaptation. Corpse Bride, which is all right, but tries way too hard to be like Nightmare Before Christmas. It even has the fucking same music. Like, yeah. I, no, no thank you, Burton. Then Sweeney Todd, which a lot of people really like. I know. I know a lot of people that love fan. it. I don't like it. Uh, Alice in Wonderland, which is god awful. And Kelsey takes personal offense because Alice in Wonderland is one of her favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. And Dark Shadows, which is a remake of which a we didn't dark see. soap opera, which... Yeah, Kelsey's right. We didn't see it. I so. kind of wanted to see it, but I also thought to myself, I'd like to see the TV show. I've never the watched TV the TV show's show. really long, though, so... I know. Yeah. Frankenweenie, which is an unnecessary remake of his short. <sighs> okay, Frank again... Frankenweenie, which was so... The short was so good. It's live action, and it's really clever and cute. Again, I've never seen the actual Yeah, it might be film. good... It might be good, but I just take such offense to it because I love the short so much. I like I like that it seems to be a really good visual representation of the book he wrote. And then next up was Big Eyes, which seemed to be more like a big fish kind of thing where it's whimsical, but a little bit more grounded. I haven't even heard of that. Big Eyes is the movie about Margaret Keene, who was an artist, and her paintings usually had characters with really big eyes. And... Her, her relationship with her husband who took credit for a lot of her work back in the 60s. So that one, you know, did got, got some positive buzz. And then wrapping it up, he did Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Which, which was we like. Pretty good. Yeah, actually. It was, you know, it wasn't outstanding, but it was pretty good. Yeah. And he's currently in post-production for Dumbo because he did... Alice in Wonderland, and that was a huge hit for Disney, so now he's doing Dumbo. And <laughs> listed on IMDb as announced, quote-unquote, is Beetlejuice 2. Really, didn't we say all we needed to say with the first Beetlejuice? <laughs> Beetlejuice 2 has been in talks since the first Beetlejuice came out, which is 30 years now, so this probably has been showing up on his IMDb credits since IMDb existed. It was originally supposed to be Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. Must we go tropical? I don't know if they're ever... They're going to have to be desperate to actually go ahead with this, I think. I think I actually heard that they were going to do it. It's not going to be the Hawaiian thing. It's a different story. And that Michael Keaton is signed up for it already. Well, I know Michael Keaton wanted to do it since the beginning. He, he, he loves this movie. So, yeah, no, he's totally for it. But... Uh, one of the guys who was hired to rewrite it, who who backed out, said he didn't feel comfortable rewriting it, that anything he could possibly do to the Beetlejuice universe, I guess, would only diminish the original movie. And there is no way in hell that there's that there's going to be a sequel that's going to be as good as or better than the original. So why bother? I mean, that's kind of the way I feel. I wouldn't be totally averse to it. But based on Tim Burton's current track record, eh, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, man, we just went off on a huge tangent about Tim Burton. So let's talk about the story. Kelsey, take us through it. 
So we've got these Maitlands, this couple who start out alive. And they live in this big, big house, but they don't have kids. So what they allude to is that they've tried to have children, but they couldn't. They obviously want to, and they're going to try again. And they are on a stay-at-home vacation for two weeks. Yeah. They run the local hardware store. Which includes the model kit stuff that he uses To build the model that we fly over in the beginning. Yeah, that's what he does for fun. And it seems like what she does is she's a homemaker. She does, (laughs) she enjoys cleaning and wallpaper. But yeah, that's what for their anniversary or whatever, because that's why they're taking their vacation. She gets him some oil that he can use to on, on the furniture in his models. He gets her wallpaper to redo, I think, the guest room or something like that. Uh, this is the type. They're really boring, but they love each other so much. And they're really, really cute. I think the two of them are really good together. In this yes, movie. they're yeah. a very sweet couple together. And it, it's it's exemplified to me when we watch the movie, when he's like, oh, I have to get a new brush for this oil. Do you want to come with me? And she's like, yeah, but don't be inside too long. Meaning she's just going to go with him because she wants to go on this drive with him. And then he's going to run in the hardware store and run back out. And then they're going to drive home. There's no reason for her to go along other than the fact that they just want to be around each other. And that's really cute, I thought. But unfortunately for them, on their drive back from the hardware store, they get into a car accident. They fall to their death from a bridge because of a dog. A covered bridge, much like Sleepy Hollow. (laughs) Yes. But both Chris and I are like, how could they have died from that? It's like a... It's not a very long fall, and the the car was not, like, immediately submerged or anything, so it's a little confusing. This is where we talk about, I know we keep going off on these tangents, but this is where we get the original script by Michael McDowell. It was originally a horror movie, and it wasn't a comedy. And Beetlejuice was a winged demon. You didn't summon him by saying his name three times. You couldn't control him that way either. The... The saying home three times doesn't take you home. Like that all wasn't in there. There was no comedy. His goal, it's, they kind of address it in this movie. His goal was to kill the Dietzes, murder them. And he, he mauls the mom as a squirrel or something like that. And his goal is not to marry Lydia, but to rape her. And when the Maitlands die, they die tragically and gruesomely and like in the crash, they get pinned down. Gina Davis's arm gets crushed and, and that's why they die is they drown because they're crushed in their car underwater and it is gruesome and horrific. And then they're like, Hey, let's lighten this movie up a little bit. That's really fascinating because when they get inside, the first thing he asks her is how is your arm? Yeah. Uh huh. And she says it's cold. I think. Yeah. That's what she says. Yeah. So there, there's still remnants of the story, but it wasn't originally a comedy. So glad they turned it into one, though. So they very quickly discover that something is wrong. They don't realize that they're dead. Haha, <laughs> that's going to come up later. Yeah. So they get home and there's a fire going and Gina Davis puts her hands near it and her hand cut- catches on fire and they're like, why aren't you in pain? Why is that not doing anything to you? Uh-huh. And then 
Alec Baldwin's character is like, I'm going to go and re- retrace our steps because I can't seem to remember how we got home. And when he steps off their porch, he goes into what you might think originally is another dimension, but you find out later that it's Saturn. It's Saturn. Since they're dead, they don't need to breathe. But that's where the sandworms are. They're from Saturn. So then he tries to get back into the house and Gina Davis pulls him in and she says that he's been gone for, was it two hours or four hours? Multiple hours. Hours. That's how long you've been gone. Hours. I think she says a number, but whatever. So... She brings him back in and she's like, we have no reflection in the mirror. Plus, now we have this book called Handbook for the Recently Deceased. Yep. Very famous. And that's how they kind of discover, oh, my God, we died. And what's so funny is that they're really OK with it. Yeah. No, that's, part, that's where part of the humor comes from. Yeah. Is them just being oddly OK with it. They're so boring that it's not really a shock to them. And they're stuck <laughs> inside their house. Which is all they wanted to do anyway. Right, yeah. So they're kind of just fine with it. Yeah. They don't need to worry about eating or going to the bathroom or any of that stuff. They can just continue doing what they want to do. One thing that doesn't occur to them, though, is that in the living world, there's things going on with their estate, including their house being sold to this... Yuppie family from Chicago. I say yuppie because Otho calls out the yuppies. Charles... You're lucky the yuppies are buying condos, so you can afford what I'm going to have to do to this place. They're they're very avant-garde, we shall say. Mm-hmm. One is, they don't actually say what Jeffrey Jones is, I don't think, but he's a high-powered businessman type. That has something to do with property. Yeah, real estate. And Catherine O'Hara is an artiste. <laughs> But a terrible one. Oh, yeah. No, she's a real bad artist. And she's so avant-garde that she turns certain clothes into other clothes. At one point, she wears a sweater that Jeffrey Jones wore in the movie. She wears it as pants. And a a headdress that she wears is actually two gloves tied together. She's very avant-garde. And I love the stuff they do with her. She is spectacular in this. I know. I love her in this. If you don't know who she is, because you haven't seen Beetlejuice for some insane reason, she is the mom from Home Alone. Yes, and she's Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas. Among other things, she was on SCTV. Famous comedian. So the Dietzes are moving in. They bought the house, and they're moving in. That's Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara and Winona Ryder as Lydia Dietz. She's... The young, gothic, I wish I was dead type person. And that actually comes into play. She really does wish she was dead. He told me that if I let him out, he would take me to the other side to find you. No, Lydia, we're dead. I want to be dead too. No. Lydia. Being dead really doesn't make things any easier. She spoke a lot to me as a kid. (laughs) I really wanted to be Lydia Dietz. There was one Halloween where I dressed up as Beetlejuice and Kelsey dressed up as Lydia and she looked amazing. We both did. We both looked perfect. Of course, I made both costumes, so, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So when the Dietzes move in, Well, there's a couple things I want to say right before they get in there. So when they're going through the handbook for the recently deceased, 
they're having a really difficult time understanding it because there's the implication is that they're just so boring and normal that they just can't understand what it is to be yeah. dead. No, the implication is that everything in the afterlife is so bureaucratic that the handbook for the recently deceased, both I think it was Alec Baldwin and Najina Davis and Jeffrey Jones say it reads like stereo instructions. This book reads like stereo instructions. Listen to this. Geographical and temporal perimeters. Functional perimeters vary from manifestation to manifestation. Right. But Winona Ryder is able to read through it and totally understand uh -huh. it. And Otho, too. Right. Yeah. Which I get that, oh, these read like stereo instructions. I get that's the joke. This thing reads like stereo instructions. But I think more the implication is you need to be a little bit more. Like totally into it. You know? Weird yeah. and open-minded <laughs> to understand it. Totally. So, but they say that because they, they're trying to understand like, oh, why do we go into Saturn when we open our door? And it says each manifestation has different parameters. And then it talks about why can't humans see us? And it's because it says they just won't. Can't see you, right? Uh-uh. In the book, rule number two, the living usually won't see the dead. Won't or can't? It just says won't. God, this book is so stupid. I can't understand anything in there. Not that they can't, but that, that they, they won't. That they won't. Yeah, and eventually this is the reason why Lydia can see them when they're trying to spook the deets is out of the house they throw some sheets on like because because they well, can manipulate objects but at first they try to just like tear their faces off and be really yeah, creepy but nobody can see them but they can't see them so they decide to interact with physical objects that are around the world after they go and speak to juno oh it's not until yeah they speak to okay juno, but they do that so they find out in the handbook that they have basically a caseworker that they can talk to and so they go into the afterlife bureaucracy to talk to her and it's revealed to them that they get three special interventions. Basically, For 125, 125 years. years they have to spend <laughs> in this house. And in that time, they get three special interventions. And it's it's an interesting world in the afterlife. One thing that Otho says that appears to ring true is that people who kill themselves become social workers in the afterlife. Civil workers. Civil workers. And... Yeah, you see Juno, She the implication is that she cut her own throat because she has a hole in her throat. Which when I was younger, I thought that was because she's a smoker and you uh -huh. see the smoke coming out. Like she out. had a trach. I yeah, thought it was uh -huh. like the lady from those commercials. Yeah, uh-huh. But that's kind of the effect that you're getting. And the receptionist slit her wrists. There's the guy who hung himself. I guess the implication is, is the guy run, ran himself over and flattened himself. Uh, that's the guy who's hanging from the from the line. Because, and this is actually a joke that I didn't understand when I was a kid. The lady behind the desk says, and I'll tell you what, if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have had my little accident. And then she shows the cuts on her wrists. I never put those two together until I was an adult. Like, when I was a kid, I was just like, I don't understand. I, get, <laughs> I just always kind of assumed that she meant, like... Being dead sucks, and yeah, I wouldn't have killed uh -huh. myself if I had known. No, it's that she becomes a civil worker. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'll tell you something. If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have had my little accident. And so she tells them, ah, you know, you got to do your best to get them out of the house if you want them out of the house. But whatever you do, because they bring it up, do not talk to that guy. They're about to say, 
Beetlejuice, but she stops them. No, no, no. Don't say his name. Don't ever say his name. Do not go with him. He used to be my assistant, and now he's a bioexorcist for hire. Because he's, like, imprisoned? I don't understand that part. It They barely talk about it, and it just doesn't really make sense. Yeah, in, in the original script, he needed to be exhumed. And that's all you needed to do to summon him, was dig him out of his grave. In this case, they kind of do that. They They get shrunk down, and then they dig him out of his grave. And that's how he's finally free. He's living in there. He pulls a fly down in there. Yeah, he. so he... Scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Yeah. So much so that I was afraid to say his name. Uh Uh-huh. I was really afraid he was going to come to life. Do you want to know what that effect is? What? The Bloody Mary effect. Oh. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. The Candyman effect. Yes. You know, where you say somebody's name repeatedly in a dark room in, in front of a mirror. The reason is... Usually the fucking bathroom. Yeah, well, because that's where there's a mirror that you can see, and Kelsey's totally terrified of the bathroom now. <laughs> there's so many movies that like are like, the bathroom is not a safe place. <laughs> so that's your mind playing tricks on you. You actually do literally see things. Your mind does a lot of stuff on autopilot, right? If it's a repetitive task, that's why it's easy to fall asleep when you're driving, is because if it's not engaged, it just puts things on autopilot and it doesn't even think about them. And when it comes to your 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 um, vision, for instance, there's a point where you have receptors that connect to your back of your eye. You can't actually see anything at certain points in your vision, but your mind just fills in the blanks for you automatically. So when you go on autopilot, that's what's happening. You go into a dark room, where you can't really make out any major details, uh, your eyes try to adjust to that, and you repeat the same name of the thing you want to see over and over again, and you have visualized in your mind what you want to see, and so when your mind is like, this is boring, I'm going on autopilot, it just fills things in, and you see shapes in the mirror, humanoid shapes, and that's what really freaks you out, and that's why people swear up and down. They weren't necessarily lying you might have had friends that lied about this but they weren't necessarily lying because that's totally a thing that happens nobody's actually appearing but your mind is like this is boring show me something (laughs) so that's that's where that whole say a name three times and they appear thing comes from which led to how you summon beetlejuice another fun little thing is that otho can kind of see them not as well as winona ryder can because winona ryder can just see them as soon as she sets eyes on them he feels alec baldwin when he runs by he looks somewhere and he's like i thought i saw something yeah because he's a little weird yeah he's in tune a little bit with the weirdness Uh and it's it's really great because you're supposed to not like him and you're supposed to not like Catherine o'hara Catherine o'hara can't feel them at all yeah which kind of also says something about her character that she wants to be that way but she's not but she's she's trying really hard with her sculptures and things like that and her style but it's all an affectation with her versus otho who actually is weird and lydia who's very weird yes yeah so speaking of seeing things They try to kick them out by interacting with physical objects now at this point, and they throw the sheets on their heads, and they try to scare both Charles and Delia when Lydia comes out with a Polaroid camera and starts taking pictures of them. They're like, wait a minute, you can see us? And then she looks at the Polaroid pictures, and she sees no legs. No feet. No feet. (laughs) Sick. Sexual perversion. 
guys are going to do that weird sexual stuff, do it in your own bedroom. And so she figures out right away that they're ghosts and she's totally unfazed by it. The Maitlands say, wait a minute, I thought no humans could actually, no living people could actually see us. To which Lydia says, live people ignore the strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual. You can see us without the sheets. Of course I can see you. Well, how is it that you see us and nobody else can? Well, I read through that handbook for the recently deceased. It says... Live people ignore the strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual. And that's why she can see them. I thought that's really, really adorable. That's one of the greatest lines in the movie. Yeah, and it's interesting because Lydia, I love her character so much. And she's, like we said, gothic. She wears all black. She's super depressed and she's really intelligent, etc. But whenever there's actual scary things going on, she does get really scared. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting part of her character because, well, I think it plays into the ending, which for her character, I don't really like the ending because it kind of says that, oh, all she needs is love. And, and then she'll be normal. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But, but she's still a little weird. We'll get into that when we get to the ending. But... They decide to talk to Beetlejuice just to see what's up with him. They dig him out of his grave, and he is way too much for them. This is... Listen, there'll probably be a lot of clips of Beetlejuice in this. <laughs> but he is he's very aggressive. He's a con artist type person. He is sexually harassing Gina Davis's character. Babs. Boy, do you know how to pick up. Let me ask you something. Is this relationship really solid? Do I have a shot at her at all? Excuse me. Sure. Am I overstep my bounds? Just tell me. Come on. And he's awful, and they decide, you know what? Let's try to do this without him. And this is the Deo scene, where everyone's having dinner. Otho and his... What is she? <laughs> his sister? His wife? What is girl, she? I think he's just a girl he's dating. Yeah. And, and the family are there. And well, no, it's her. It's Catherine O'Hara. It's her husband. It's her daughter-in-law. No, stepdaughter. Stepdaughter. It's, it's Otho her... and his kind of girlfriend kind of thing. It's and then it's her agent. And, and then he brought wife. no, he girlfriend. brought a woman who works for Art in America magazine. OK, yeah. Just because Delia wants to show off her artwork and what she's doing with the new house and all of that. She wants to impress people and she wants to be known in the art world. And we don't see directly how, but they start forcing Delia to sing and dance to Deo. I would rather talk about... Deo! Also, are you doing Work this? Work all night on a drink of rum. That is another thing that I'm not 
crazy about this movie. It's, again, part of the mechanics that they just don't bother to explain. But we know that you can throw your voice. Beetlejuice displays that with Gina Davis, where he puts his voice in her mouth. Right, but they don't explain how the the Maitlands are able to do it, how they figure out Yeah, how but there's a lot it. of things that they just try and it works, right? So, like, if you're a ghost... You think of something, try it. It'll probably work. So they're like probably physically manipulating them or and then they get the hang of doing it by proxy. They throw their voice and they make them all sing and dance to Deo, but not Lydia, who's kind of standing in the corner. And you can see if you pay attention, she's laughing at this. It's really funny. And then they run back upstairs to the attic where the model where the model town is. And they're like, we did it. That was so fantastic. It actually it's going to scare the crap out of them and they're going to want to get out of here. At which point Lydia comes upstairs and says, they want to talk to you. I want you to come downstairs. Delia says you can wear any sheets you want. They want you to come downstairs. They thought it was absolutely amazing. It was like being in an amusement park. <laughs> I didn't even know I could do the Calypso. That's more fun than us. What with Tracy and Hepburn here. A very sophisticated pair. I mean, they even appear in sheets. <laughs> and now they want to sell uh, admission to this place as a, as a haunted attraction. Absolutely not what they were going for. And let's just speed this up a little bit. When the Maitlands decline, they the Dietzes enlist Otho to have an exorcism to bring them out and force them to come out. But it's also because Charles, the father brings his boss wants his boss to come out there because he's saying we can buy up this whole town and we can turn it into whatever we want we basically because they these people don't understand how much their property is worth yeah and otho tells him you can get that guy up here now because his wife loves the paranormal yeah yeah, so now you have a selling point so they bring him there and, and and they 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 read the proposal to him the maitlands don't want to come down because like they they were willing to to reveal themselves to the Dietzes and all that, but now that they know it's going to be sold as an attraction, they don't want to be like uh, prostituted out like that. They don't want to ruin their home more than it's already been ruined and all of that. And so Otho decides or proposes that they have an exorcism and force them to come out because he's been reading the handbook for the recently deceased and so he knows how to do it the problem is is he doesn't know anything from there so he summons them with their their wedding clothes we we missed the part where beetlejuice took over so right after everyone leaves because they're just like well clearly that was just a hallucination of them dancing yeah calypso deo song and that pisses Catherine o'hara off because now her agent's like you're a flake you're a terrible sculpture. And she's just like pissed off. So she goes, they all go up there and she's like, let us in, let us in. And they end up opening the door. And that's when Otho finds the book. But when they go out into the hallway again, Beetlejuice comes alive. And it's because they said his name three times. Because they said his name three times, that gave him the ability to come out into the real world and so he becomes the snake and he almost kills charles and he kind of goes after lydia and then what's her name says beetlejuice 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 and gets him back into the model so then the maitlands are like that was way too dangerous you could have hurt somebody etc so 
Juno, their caseworker, comes back to them. And she's like, what the hell are you doing? You've been photographed. You've allowed people to know you exist. That one guy has the handbook. You are making a mess of our entire afterlife. Oh, you two have really screwed up. I received word that you allowed yourself to be photographed. And you let Beetlejuice out and didn't put him back. And you let Otho get hold of the handbook. A handbook when? Never trust the living. We cannot have a routine haunting like yours provide proof that there is existence beyond death. And she's like, you need to do something really scary. And that's when they do the whole face thing. And while they're talking to Juno, mm -hmm. Lydia is talking to Beetlejuice and figuring out his name. And she says it twice after they play charades. But then she goes, wait a minute. You were the snake, weren't you? Uh -huh. okay. I need to talk to the Maitlands before I, yeah. I say your name a third time. Beetlejuice? Yes, that's it! Name's Beetlejuice? Ah, you said it twice. Just say it once more. Come on. It was you, wasn't it? Me! The snake. No, oh, what snake, you kids, in your imagination? Just say it! Mm. I want to talk to Barbara. No, you don't need to talk to Barbara. Just say it! But when they show up, they scare the crap out of her because they've got their faces all fucked up. After Lydia discovers Beetlejuice and learns his name through a game of charades, because again, it's not really clear, but for some reason, Beetlejuice cannot tell people his actual name. Well, you know why? Because if I tell you, you tell your friends, your friends are calling me on the horn all the time, and I gotta show up in shopping centers for openings and sign autographs and shit like that, and that makes my life a hell, okay? A living hell. Yeah. And it's not spelled like Beetlejuice, so if you were to read it, you would think it said Beetlegeist. And so... You probably wouldn't be able to guess his name. So he does this whole charades thing. But then she realizes, wait a minute, you were the snake. And I don't think I want to talk to you. But then the Maitlands have been talking to Juno, their caseworker. And she has flipped out because she's like, you have been photographed. You've shown people you exist. And that guy has the handbook for the recently deceased. What are you doing? So they have to make these scary faces. So they do. But then on their way back, Barbara says, you know what? I really love Lydia. And that makes sense because they really wanted to have kids. And yeah. so they kind of see Lydia they as to their try child. Again, the implication is that they've tried before, but they were unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of decided to not have kids. But they're in the mood again. They want to have kids. So they come back and they scare the heck out of Lydia. And then they change their faces and they tell her, okay, it's fine. We're going to let you guys stay here. But what they don't realize is that Charles has invited up those people. So when he, they come, Lydia's like, I can't help you. They're not going to come down. They don't want this. She's like, I think they want to stay here with us, but we need to stop making them do stupid tricks. And they say, well, that doesn't matter. We've got Otho. So then Otho does the whole exorcism thing that Chris was talking about. And he brings them basically back to life. But because they're dead, they very quickly disintegrate. Yeah. They start to decompose, which is what drives Lydia to go back to Beetlejuice and say, will you help them if I take you out? And he says, I will if you marry me. And why does he want her to marry him? Because uh, he thinks she's hot because she's all into black and everything. That's why he's into her. But if he can get married, he can come back to life. And he gets... Oh, is that... Yeah. When did they explain he, that? He says that. 
and so he's like, well, if I'm going to rejoin the world of the living, I need to get married. It's almost like a green card. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Sure. I can help him. You got to help me. What? Look, I want you might call him illegal alien, okay? I want out for good. In order for me to do that, hey, I got to get married. Hey, these aren't my rules. Come to think of it, I don't have any rules. <laughs> and so she agrees to it because she's like, whatever, we'll deal with that later. They're dying downstairs. You need to save them. And so this is when it goes fucking all out. <laughs> and he comes down. He knocks Charles's boss and his guest through the ceiling. And we never see them again. Okay. <laughs> and he changes Otho's outfit as he's running away. He changes it into a, a polyester, like leisure suit style thing and he screams and runs away <laughs> so now it's just lydia the deetses who are acting as witnesses so he traps them with delia's sculptures and forces them to witness as this little weird totally tim burton-esque character uh marries beetlejuice and and lydia now lydia is wearing red why do you think that is why is she wearing a bright red dress? Why is she wearing a red dress? I would assume just to be outlandish because you're supposed to wear white and... So this is fun. Okay. White representing virginity at a wedding is a new construct. There is no long history of this being the case. As a matter of fact, what women would do, they would dress up in their absolute best, fanciest thing that they had. And it could be any color but eventually it got to the point where colors meant something and then it would be you had to uh show off your extravagance by buying like wearing except for the something borrowed and the something old everything had to be brand new and you could never wear it again and white was one of those was a representation of that because if you stain it at all it's like stained for good and it's screwed it needs to be something that you can dispose of because you'll never wear it again and so that's showing off how important this day is to you by buying a whole new wardrobe extravagant just for that one ceremony but before that all the colors meant something and there were positive colors like white was positive and pink was positive but there's a there's there's like a nursery rhyme style thing that went over what the colors meant and i'm going to read those to you right now i'll skip the red one married in white you've chosen all right married in green a shame to be seen married in blue you will always be true married in yellow ashamed of your fellow married in black you will wish yourself back married in pink of you he'll think and I skip the red one, which is married in red, you will wish yourself dead. And that's why she has a red wedding gown in this movie. Interesting. So the Maitlands, now that they're alive again, are trying to get Beetlejuice. So, so first he makes Adam lose his teeth so he can't say anything. Uh -huh. Then he gets his mouth back, and then he makes him tiny, uh -huh. which I don't know how that would stop him from saying his name. He puts him back in the model, the model town, which is up in the attic. Barbara tries to say it. He puts a zipper on her mouth. She unzips it. She says it again. He puts a, a metal effect. plate over her mouth. 
And then for some reason, he sends her out to Saturn. I think she might get the metal plate off or something. But then he teleports her away, just like he teleported Adam to the mini town. He teleports her outside into Saturn where there's a sandworm coming after her. And he goes on with the wedding to try to marry Lydia. Meanwhile, Adam's upstairs in the model town and he gets in a car that Beetlejuice was driving, one of the model cars, (laughs) which because they're ghosts and they can interact with real life in weird ways, it actually runs. Because for all intents and purposes, when you are that small and you're living in that model town, everything is just like a real town would be. The lights work. The cars work. There's a brothel, which Juno puts there to distract him, uh, to distract Beetlejuice. And then he gets in the car and he rides it off of the t- table that the model town is on. Oh, it's not in the attic. It's downstairs. That's right. Because they, they were doing the proposal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He drives it off of the table and then across the floor and then dives out of it and drives it right into Beetlejuice's foot where it explodes. And then at that point, through the roof, <laughs> through the attic, the upper story, and down into the into the lower floor comes Barbara riding on the sandworm. And it's already been revealed that Beetlejuice hates sandworms where it eats him, gobbles him up, and then goes down into the ground. And that's how we dispose of Beetlejuice, by killing him again. Yeah, it's it's really great. And then they end up all living together, and they're happy, and this, is the, this is the only part that I don't like, is that, D, is that Lydia then starts going to this all-girls school, so she has to wear, like, this, you know, typical girl's skirt and shirt right and she she's she wants to be a good student because she really likes the maitlands and they're basically doing the job of raising her but it's like a joint effort they're all four of them living together with lydia and they're all kind of happy charles just wanted to relax Uh, delia just wanted to do her art and the maitlands just wanted to live in this home and raise a kid which is now what they get to do and as and, a reward for getting an A in math, I think, something like that. Yeah. She gets to She gets to fly dance and in dance. The air. <laughs> See, this is her still being a little weird. But she's they, making concessions to be a good student and be a good person so she can fulfill the weird stuff that she wants to do. Yeah. So it's a fantastic movie. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Okay. I believe you jump in the line. Seriously, so, so good. One of our favorites. It's a great comedy. It's a great horror movie. It's very, very good. Kelsey, what else did you want to talk about? So this is one of those movies where you could just bring every quote. That's what most of my notes is. It's just the most amazing quotes. It's so well written. It's so perfectly timed. Tremendously acted. It's hilarious. I mean... Uh, when it comes to that part of the film, I can't give any criticism, really. It's really quite perfect. They all worked together really well. And it's hilarious. And so when I hear that Alec Baldwin didn't necessarily like his performance, is he probably one of the weaker aspects? He's a little bland. He's a little bland, but that's what his character's supposed right. to be. yeah. So I'm just going to try to pick out my favorite quotes here. So if you have stuff you want to talk about, go. Okay, you pick out the quotes. I'm going to tell you the story about Beetlejuice and where the name comes from. So Beetlejuice, which is B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E, and often mispronounced as Betelgeist and stuff like that. 
fatal, Geist. The bio-exorcist. Troubled by the living. Is death a problem and not the solution? Unhappy with eternity? Having difficulty adjusting? Call Betel, Geist. It is actually, I believe it's Arabic? And it basically means Hand of Orion. It is a star in our night sky. It's the shoulder of Orion. So when you hear in Blade Runner, what's-his-face talking about off the shoulder of Orion. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. It could be Beetlejuice. It's a, it's a red star, and it is often misinterpreted as instead of Hand of Orion or Shoulder of Orion as the armpit of Orion, which is kind of funny. But yeah, it's a real thing. It's an actual star. And apparently the writer was surprised that people drew the connection between the character of Beetlejuice and the star in our night sky. Before the internet, he didn't expect anybody to actually figure this out. Beetlejuice is important in our collective fiction because of things like in the Cthulhu mythos, which is H.P. Lovecraft in a story that wasn't written by him. Uh, it is explained as being the home of the Elder Gods. It is where Ford Prefect from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is from. He's from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice. Uh, and it's in a bunch of other things. There's a Philip K. Dick story that uh, takes place around Beetlejuice. So Beetlejuice appears in our fiction quite a bit as a star. So if you didn't know it, that's where the name comes from. So the first quote I want to bring up is kind of a small one, not one that a lot of people will talk about. It's at the very beginning of the film when they have to go down to the hardware store. Yeah. They're... Oh, and the barber? <laughs> yes. So he's trying to get in and they're like we said, he's trying to do it really fast because they want to get started on their staycation. And this guy is this barber and he's right next door and he's just one of those people who never stops talking and doesn't realize that you're not interested in what he's saying. I know these people. <laughs> Everyone knows these people. And he's talking about how like this hippie came in and had hair down with goddamn shoulders. I took my scissors to his hair as fast as you could blink. It's so great. <laughs> he got hair right down to his goddamn shoulders. He says to me, just, just... And this whole story he's telling, Adam doesn't hear any of it. Yeah, because he ran inside and, and it's then like leaves. the barber doesn't care. He just wants to tell the story. There's a conversation where they're at dinner. They've just moved in and Delia's complaining about how she's not happy there. And then Lydia's like, you know, I don't really like it here either. And Catherine O'Hara just wants to be argumentative. And she goes, it's our first dinner together in this new house. Can we at least make it a pleasant one? Even though she was just complaining. Oh, totally, yeah. And then she also says about Lydia, so you were miserable in New York, and you'll be miserable here. At least someone's life hasn't been upheaved. <laughs> <laughs> so you were miserable in New York City, and now you're going to be miserable out here in the sticks. At least someone's life hasn't been upheaved. And she's talking about, you know, I'm only really happy when I am sculpting. And Charles goes, that's a great idea. It'll be very time consuming, which kind of just tells us that they're not happy together. <laughs> no, it's like, why are they married? Uh -huh. This kid isn't even hers. Like, why are they together? It, it's it's a little interesting when the Maitlands are trying to scare them with the sheets and they're making these moaning sounds. <laughs> and Lydia just assumes that that's the Dietz is having sex. <laughs> and so 
the father says to, to Lydia to try to make her happy. He's like, you know what? We'll build you a dark room downstairs. And she goes, my whole life is a dark room. One big dark room. As soon as we get settled, we'll build you a dark room in the basement, okay? My whole life is a dark room. One big dark room. Iconic. <laughs> Which is used by AFI in one of their songs. The, the very despair beginning. factor. My whole life is a dark room. One big dark room. At one point when they're moving in, Catherine O'Hara is talking to this guy who's a mover. And she's like, if you tell me what you do, I'll tell you when my husband will fire you. <laughs> she's just a bitch. And I love it. I love her so much. And then when they're moving in, she gets caught by one of her sculptures and she goes, this is my art and it is dangerous. Do you think I want to die like this? <laughs> she basically calls out her own shit, but she doesn't like it when other people do. We talked earlier about how it won an Academy Award and a British Academy Film Award. It also won not only Best Makeup, but also Best Horror Film. So it justifies us talking about it on this show at the 1988 Saturn Awards, which is an award for science fiction, fantasy and horror. So really cool. That best cool. horror film that year. That's awesome. At one point, the Maitlands are walking through to find their caseworker for the first time and a window shade pops up and they see all these dead ghosts and she goes, oh, God, what is that? And this janitor comes up and he closes it and he says, ghosts that have been exercised. Poor devils. <laughs> I thought that was clever. Yeah. Oh, Adam. What is this? That's the lost souls room. A room for ghosts that have been exorcised. Poor devils. That's death for the dead. I love the little the little nods to it's the same reason I really like the world of John Wick, the original, is it, it just gives you a peek into this world and lets you know that there's a rule structure, but it doesn't take a lot of time to explain it to you. It's just like, hey, you want to know more about this, don't you? Like that's and that part very I'm much like that. That part I'm fine with them not explaining because you yeah. can figure out that kind of stuff on your own and it's just interesting and it's different and cool. Yeah. And plus, the Maitlands are supposed to be completely confused, so it makes sense. We're on the same level as them. But when you make it clear that there are rules about this Beetlejuice character and when he can pop up and when he can't, you should really make that more clear. Yeah. In my opinion. Kelsey, there's a Broadway musical in the works. Oh, Jesus. I am actually excited. I think that this could actually work. Um, it's already a very musical movie. It's a comedy. They do a lot of fun stuff with a really low movie budget in 1988. So what you can do with a modern Broadway budget, if you could do some really cool stuff with props and sets and characters and stuff like that, I think it could totally work. Unlike other movies that are oftentimes turned into musicals, which shouldn't be. I disagree. But another line is... Lydia's trying to explain to Catherine O'Hara that there are ghosts in the in the house and, you know, we should be nice to them or whatever. And Catherine O'Hara doesn't believe her at all. 
And she goes, I told them you were too uptight to to understand. And she goes, don't you dare talk to others about me. (laughs) (laughs) Even though she doesn't even believe that they're there. She's just like, don't you dare talk to others about me. It's so great. It's such a mom thing to say. There are so many lines and I'm really, I'm skipping a lot. You should know that. At one point, Beetlejuice calls her Edgar Allan Poe's daughter. Yeah. It's pretty uh great. He, He says that, I think, to the Maitlands to say he's interested in her. Yes. And they tell her, tell him to leave her alone. When they're doing the whole, like, trying to figure out what his name is, she goes, I need to talk to Barbara. You don't need to talk to Barbara. Say it. <laughs> He's so good. I love Michael <laughs> Keaton in this role. He's so awesome. His famous line, it's showtime. Beetlejuice. 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 It's showtime. Yeah, he also says nice fucking model when he knocks the tree over. (laughs) Nice fucking model! Which is, it is famous for, among other films such as Spaceballs, to be a PG movie that says fuck after the PG-13 rating was created. Very few, there are like four movies that say it. This is one of them. Spaceballs is another one. Where he says, fuck, even in the future, nothing works. Out of order, fuck, even in the future, nothing works. <laughs> and then uh, when he comes when he comes up to help the Maitlands, he says, I think they've had enough exercise for one night. Yep, yep, I got, got that too. That was very clever. I guess the last thing I would like to say, I love that Barbara kind of mans up and... Gets on yeah, top of one of the sands, totally. sandworms, even though she's afraid of them. That's the most epic and heroic thing in the entire movie. And Barbara gets to do it. It's Pretty totally awesome. cool. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's I, I have so There's many. Other so lines. much to say. I know we could say so much more, but we're going a long time here. And uh, what is this? It. Um, <laughs> I know. But it's so good. It is so good. And if you have not seen it, watch it. That's like the sixth time we've said that. And if you haven't seen it yet after that. I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, Kelsey, what do you think it got? 95. Not even close. 82. Okay. Yeah? Is that all you have to say about that? I thought you were going to say, like, way under that, and I was going to have a fit. So the fact <laughs> that it still at least made it in the 80s makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Happy. No, this is absolutely considered fresh by Rotten Tomatoes standards. The consensus is brilliantly bizarre and overflowing with ideas – Beetlejuice offers some of Michael Keaton's most deliciously manic work and creepy, funny fun for the whole family. It's funny it says the whole family. Oh, no, not at all. Absolutely not. The whole family if you have some maybe preteens and teenagers. Yeah, I I don't think I'd let my kids watch this until they were like 11. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just because it's scary. I mean, it is. the really dead scary. people, when they're walking around looking for Juno, that scared the crap out of me when I was a kid, too. Yeah, uh-huh. It's just, All the people it's they very scary by. looking. The, I mean, that's when you think about the fact that this got an Academy Award for makeup. That's when that makes sense. Yeah. And you have like the, the football team who crashed, <laughs> although their coach survived. Like that was tragic to me. I remember the first time seeing that. I'm like, oh, that's sad. But they're like just kind of playing it for laughs in the movie. I, and I as a child now as an adult, I can look back at it and I'm like, I'm just kind of like Barbara. When Barbara's walking around, she's like holding Adam really tight and she's got her eyes all wide. She's Uh just like, oh, my God, I don't want to look at these people. That's how I felt as a kid. And Adam's just walking through, you know, Barbara, this is weird, but we're going to have to get used to it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, I would definitely give it like a 93. Yeah, I probably would too. This In is fact, a I can't movie. think of a reason why I'm giving it not a hundred. Ah, there are problems with it. Sure. Yeah, like it's couple. not, it's not. Okay. I, I, I hesitate to say that 100 to me means perfect. 100 doesn't mean perfect. It means that's the highest rating we could possibly give something like that's how much we enjoy it I but guess, still i guess it bothers me that they don't clear up the mechanics of things that's yeah, probably what they my play biggest... fast and loose with the logic of the world mm-hmm. which is probably its its biggest downside because they can do whatever the fuck they want but since they can do whatever they want they do some really fun stuff so absolutely entertaining one of our highest recommendations for any movie we've done yet and it's not even a traditional horror movie Sorry. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified? All right, so that was... Beetlejuice, before we move on to our next film, Slash Cards. Kelsey, what do you got for me? This one's obvious, but since it was on one of the two cards I picked, I had to choose it. What Academy Award-nominated actor played Beetlejuice in Tim Burton's uh, 1988 Beetlejuice? Oh, Michael Keaton. There it is. Did you know that Michael Keaton's real last name is Douglas? And... He had to change it when he joined SAG because Michael Douglas. Yeah, there is a real Michael <laughs> Douglas. And so he was going through all these last names and he came across K. And he just kind of like, ah, K's inoffensive. And he chose Keaton because he thought it sounded cool. A lot of people speculate, oh, he's actually related to Diane Keaton. Or he did he 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 picked that name to honor Diane Keaton. It's like, no, absolutely not. He was just <sighs> like, oh, Keaton sounds cool. And only later did he did people point out that there's Diane Keaton? Um, he still has not legally changed his name. He is still legally Michael Douglas. His son, I think his name's Sean, is Sean Douglas. Because, like, legally, he's he's Michael Douglas. That's so It's funny. really bizarre. You don't often get that sort of thing with names when people change their names. I always think about how strange that would have to be to be an actor and you have to change your name and that's what everyone knows you by. So you constantly bringing up like, that's not my actual name would be pointless. Yeah. So you just kind of have to get used to people calling you something different. Oh, I'm sure he has legal considerations for when people write checks out to Michael Keaton and stuff like that to where he can still accept them. Anyway, moving on. This one I picked just for Kelsey. It's not even a question. A bucket of blood, a fire hose, and tampons. 1976. Carrie. Yeah, it's Carrie. <laughs> so see, I try to pick I try to pick questions that have to do with the movies that we're talking about. Alright, folks, she keeps calling me out on this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna tell it to you straight. There are five questions on each of these cards in different categories. It's basically Trivial Pursuit, except for but horror But for movies. horror movies, right. Um, the odds that Kelsey found one with Beetlejuice on it is insane. <laughs> the other ones I had were name two horror movies that take place in snow or ice. Not related. The full title of the German expressionistic horror film, The Golem. I would have picked that because... German expressionism is where Tim Burton gets a lot of his ideas from. Do you know the answer to it? Say it again. 
What's the full title for the German expressionist horror film, The Golem from 1920? None at all, but at least it's related. The Golem, <laughs> how he came into the world. Oh. Um, here's one for a movie that we talked about. I wasn't confident that you would remember his name. What actor played Dr. Sam Loomis in Rob Zombie's Halloween? Michael McDowell. Oh, so close, but I'm afraid Malcolm that's McDowell, wrong. Malcolm McDowell, fuck you. <laughs> That's so unfair, because this movie was fucking written by Michael McDowell. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. That's why I said Michael instead of Malcolm. (laughs) All right, so moving on, we're going to talk about 1999's The Sixth Sense. Kelsey, can you give us a synopsis of The Sixth Sense? (laughs) This is one of those movies that I feel, like, guilty about saying what the ending is. Here, I'll give you the synopsis. Okay. There's a man, he's a well-regarded child psychologist, and after being attacked by a past patient for not doing his job good enough, he really feels the need to prove himself with his next patient, a young child who's having problems after his father leaves him. It is only when he gains the confidence of this young child that it is revealed to him that this kid can see dead people. Bum, bum, bum. Really, you've seen it already. My God, you've seen it already. This movie is famous for being the spoiler example (laughs) of the statute of limitations. It is entire like people talk about the ending of this movie freely and with abandon because they know they can because everyone knows the ending to Sixth Sense. We're not going to say it on this side of the trailer But you should go see it if you haven't seen it. This is another movie that you should absolutely see. It's written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. It's his first really big film. And it, I think, is still his best. It's so good. It's, it's, it's really really high quality you want to say something bad about this movie come at me yeah no i mean again just like beetlejuice the movie has problems but it is so good Mm -hmm. Uh, so go and watch it if you've seen it already watch it again if it's been a while it's been a while since i've seen it and i really really enjoyed it so when we come back we will talk about 1999's the sixth sense cole what's wrong I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Do you ever feel the prickly things on the back of your neck? Yes. That's them. The Sixth Sense, rated PG-13, starts Friday, August 6th. Kelsey, a little reminder for the audience, why did we pick The Sixth Sense and Beetlejuice at the same time? We chose to put Beetlejuice and The Sixth Sense together on the same episode because both feature a young person who is able to see dead people. Nicely done. I gotta say, very impressed with that observation. I really like it. Uh, They're also not that far apart. They're only 11 years apart, but The Sixth Sense falls on our modern side of our divide, which is how long? 20 years. 20 years. It is 2018 now, so this one barely falls on the other end. It's 1999. Our cutoff now is 1998, so... Still made it. Yep, it still made it. So, Kelsey, why don't you tell us what happens in The Sixth Sense? So, we open with our... I guess you could call him our protagonist. Would you call him the protagonist, or would you call the kid the protagonist? 
No, it's absolutely following Bruce Willis's character. Yeah. Okay. So we open up on Bruce Willis, who is a highly decorated psychologist for children. And he's married to this woman, and they seem very happy. They're very, very rich, but he they, they've made all their money because he has tirelessly tried to help children with their problems. And we know this because we open up on a conversation about an award that he won that So night. I say this in my notes. The opening scene with the award is cute. It's a very adorable way to do an exposition dump. It is just an exposition dump to explain that he is a very well-regarded and successful child psychiatrist. And they do that in the form of, hey, want me to read this award to you, sweetie? <laughs> it's a very cute scene, though, I will say. I'm going to read it for you. I really sound like Dr. Seuss. In recognition of his outstanding achievement in the field of child psychology, mm -hmm. his dedication to his work, and his continuing efforts to improve the quality of life. Concentrate. Hey. His continuing efforts to improve the quality of life for countless children and their families. The city of Philadelphia proudly bestows upon its son, Dr. Malcolm Crow, that's you, the merest citation for professional excellence. They called you their son. Wow. We should hang it in the bathroom. We do get a chance to see his wife, Anna, is in a wine cellar, which, oh my God, I would I want a fucking wine cellar in my house. Right. It was gorgeous. <laughs> so she goes down there and she's looking for wine and she gets very cold while she's down there. And she's like in a basement type thing and very much like children, like what we saw in It. Yeah, being scared she, of being in the basement. She's looking around. She's or home very, alone. <laughs> she's very obviously afraid. She takes a step and then she runs up the stairs and I'm like, oh my god, it's me. Totally, yeah. It's totally me. <laughs> I love that. And she sits down and they're talking about it and then he's like, let's go upstairs and have sex. And they're both very drunk. <laughs> and they do. They go upstairs and they're taking off their clothes and they're being all funny and then she notices the window's broken. Yep, the phone's been knocked off the table. And they find a very skinny Donnie Wahlberg in their Who bathroom. is fantastic. He's only in it for like five minutes. Right, but he lost like 35 pounds to play this role. and To look like a drug user. Yeah. Why it's Donnie kid. Wahlberg, I have no idea. Donnie Wahlberg is absolutely the better actor of the Wahlbergs. I'm sorry. <laughs> He is. Which is funny because this is an M. Night Shyamalan movie. And when you think about the fact that, oh, yeah, Mark Wahlberg was in one of his uh, yeah, later uh -huh. movies, <laughs> that did not go so well. <laughs> yeah. So Donnie Wahlberg is playing a character called Vincent Gray, who is an ex-patient of Dr. Crow's. Malcolm's. Now, now, what we're only supposed to really be paying attention to in this scene is that he's kind of giving us this... Like you said, exposition, but not explaining. And it's really well done. But I'd like to say that there is something even smaller that's so key to Bruce Willis's character. And it's so quickly done that you probably wouldn't even notice it unless you're paying attention. Are you saying that he doesn't know who this kid is? That he has a list of kids that he thinks he may have failed? Yes. Yeah. He says two names before he says Vincent's name. Ben Friedkin. 
Some people, they call me freak. Ronald Sumner. I am. I am a freak, Logan. Vincent Gray. Which tells us that he is haunted by the children that he has not been able to help. I just got chills when you said that. <laughs> it, it's really good, and it's so small. And it shows us that he really does love his job, and he wants to help these people. And the children, the very few that he was unable to help, he's haunted by those. Yeah, and this this is, this is going to be really important later when Malcolm tries to stop treating Cole. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the scene, but it's a very emotional scene, and it's backed by this one, where it takes him a while to figure out who this kid is that he might have failed. And that's just kids that could be this old now. Who knows how many other kids that he he might think that he's failed in the past, you know, because while he's being recognized for being an incredible son of Philadelphia and doing amazing work for the children of the city... He still isn't, he has like an imposter syndrome, I think. Yeah, and he kind of shows that a little bit when she's talking about the the award that he got to. He keeps focusing on the frame. How much do you think that frame costs? Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, no, you need to really recognize how much you've done for these kids. But anyways, so, okay, so when I saw this movie in theaters, uh-huh. I was 11 years old. Yeah. I had zero idea what I was seeing. I think I've said this a couple times. My family, I was very lucky because I love film. My parents, they see all movies from all walks of life. And when we went to see it, I literally had zero idea, zero conception of what I was walking into. I just knew it was called The Sixth Sense. That's all I knew. Yeah. And when they open with Donnie Wahlberg, I have... ADD really bad so it's hard for me to (laughs) follow conversations that I don't Uh understand so when he started talking I remember thinking in the theater what the hell is this guy's problem he's like a drug addict and uh, he's probably just saying nonsense so I didn't pay nearly enough attention to what he was saying and when you do you figure out he's he's telling you exactly what you're in for he has the same problem that Cole does he says the line do you know why you're afraid when you're alone I do I do. Do you know why you're afraid when you're alone? I do. I do. And it's such a really good reading. That's why I'm saying Donnie Wahlberg, for such a small role, he does an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Really good. So he shoots Bruce Willis because he says that Bruce Willis lied to him. He promised he could help him and he didn't. Yeah. He shoots Bruce Willis, then he shoots himself. And then we cut to 10 months later? Later that fall or something like that, it says. Or the next fall is what it says. Okay. So not quite a year, I would assume. Right, yeah. So we see then that he's got a new case with Mm -hmm. Haley Joel Osment. Haley Joel Osment. So (laughs) this may be apocryphal. This is one of the things that I wasn't able to verify. So take this with a grain of salt. But Shyamalan was impressed because he was the only kid who showed up to the audition wearing a tie. Oh! So there's that. He thought he had a great audition, too. But where, like, I guess what really sealed the deal for him is he asked him, so have you read 
uh, the part yet. So when you audition, you get what are called sides. So uh, that's just the little snippet that you're going to act out for the audition. But they they gave all these kids like the whole script. And that's not done very often. That's right, not a usual not. thing. You know, you can get it through your agent or whatever, right? So he was able to wait. I should qualify that. As far as I know, and I know a lot of actors. Well, you got to be really. You got to be. You got to be a little bit more powerful to get the whole entire script, which is why I say this might be apocryphal. But apparently, according to M Night Shyamalan, uh, he asked him if he had read his part yet, and Haley Joel Osment, who it's weird saying Haley, but Haley, uh, Haley Joel, said, "I read it three times last night," and Shyamalan's like, "Oh." fantastic you read your part three times and he's like no i read the script three times and i guess that was really impressive to him so the the tie the fact that it he thought it was so good that he read it three times and was totally prepared and then he did the best he's okay. incredible in this movie i'm sorry exactly he's again nuts. fight me he's amazing he's incredible it's, it's insane that he grew up to to not be incredible an incredibly talented famous actor Right. And He's in a lot of like small indie style movies. He does some Kevin Smith stuff. Yeah, I've uh, literally the la like I saw him in a movie that will not be fucking named. I'm going to wait. Hold on. <laughs> I'm going to guess it has something to do with a walrus. Fuck you. <laughs> God. You know, I love Kevin Smith, but he really needs to stay out of the horror genre. <laughs> not happy about it. But that was the last thing I, I saw him in. And it's not, it's not, it's not good. And I don't understand this and AI. And I get it. AI is not that great of a movie. I no, understand. No, I like AI and I think he did great in AI. He's so good. Yeah. He's so good. And I don't know what happened to his career. <laughs> well, that, that look and that acting style worked really well for a young kid. And I just don't think it works as well for an adult. And he needs to find his niche in the adult acting world. That sounds really bad in the grown up acting world. <laughs> Okay, Chris, are we going to address the ending so that we can talk yeah, about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's we're after we're after the the trailer now, so it's full spoilers, ladies and gentlemen. Malcolm Crow is dead. Mm -hmm. What a twist. And you're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, he he got shot in the very beginning and you f don't find out till the end because as we all know, Shyamalan is famous for his twist endings. Well, he wasn't yet. That, he, right, this, this is his, his first, first thing. Movie. Yeah. And that's why it took us all by shock. And he does a really good job of setting up that that attack is survivable number one yes because he gets shot once in this in the in the side and uh before vincent shoots himself so he doesn't get attacked again it cuts to months later and he's seeing another kid it seems like motivation to do right by a kid who's troubled and that's exactly what it was but that you could just dismiss it as it oh he survived okay good oh now he's gonna be really motivated to make sure he gets it right this time exactly and I know I was 11, so fr from my perspective, I had no idea, no possible way could I have figured out that he was dead. But Chris has a story about his mother, which I will let him share. Yeah, so I think it has something to do with the type of movies that you're used to. My mom really isn't a big movie buff. My dad loves action movies and things like that, so I don't know where I got my love for film from it definitely wasn't from my parents <laughs> i love them though but i'm used to seeing movies that do really like they take their time they do some artistic stuff so when you see scenes like him reaching for the bill at dinner when he shows up to dinner late 
And it turns out she had already paid. She just needs to sign for it. And then she says happy anniversary, but not directly to him and then walks off. And like those kind of quiet moments where people are behaving, maybe not in the way you would expect them to. That's normal to me now. I think there's some very art, there's artistic merit to that. And it, and it makes something really beautiful. My mom, not so much. My mom sees scenes like that and goes, there's something wrong here. And so one of the scenes when he, there's two scenes where he comes into the, into the church and I think it was one of those. It may have been when he was watching the play. I don't know. But she's like, we're all watching it. I'd seen it. My brother had seen it. My dad had seen it. My mom hadn't seen it. And we're all watching it again. And it's out on VHS. And she goes, oh, he's dead, isn't he? <laughs> we're like, God damn it, mom. <laughs> Just watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, I I had no clue. When you watch it again, it seems obvious it's, it really wasn't. And no, I he give... does a masterful job. If if you if you grew up in the age where Sixth Sense spoilers were commonplace and like, comical, like like, you did it like as a Harry joke. Potter spoilers, for instance, you can't really know what it's like to see this movie for the first time and have no idea that that's where it's going to go. And I said that somewhere halfway through. I was like, I would love to see this again without the knowledge. People talk about how there there's minor studies, not really comprehensive ones, that if you know what's going to happen, if you have a movie spoiled for you ahead of time, you tend to enjoy it more than if you don't know what's coming. And that may be the case, but... There is something to be said for the experience of going into something completely blind and not knowing the twist and not having it spoiled for you because it can only happen once. It knocked my socks off. Yeah. It was incredible. Give credit where it's due. M. Night Shyamalan did a fantastic job. With to this movie. day, I think it's his best movie. Kelsey, what other Shyamalan stuff do you know or do you like or not like? Do you have an opinion on any, on any Shyamalan stuff? I do. Do you want me to go through his... I can Oeuvre. do it. I bet I can do it without you saying it. Okay, let's let's try I, for it. You have to understand. After this movie, I was like, "Fuck yeah, M Night Shyamalan, you are amazing." So, a lot of people give a lot of shit to Unbreakable. I like Unbreakable, but I that's... didn't like it when I was a kid. I like it now. As I'm a adult. comic book fan. Yeah, it took a lot of me getting to understand comics and all that to really appreciate it for what it was. We're leaving out his first two films, Praying with Anger and Wide Awake. Never heard um, of them. Right. Sixth Sense was his first major motion picture release. Uh, and it wasn't either. It was really under the radar when, God, wh who was it? Was it Entertainment Weekly or somebody did a review of the movies coming out in the summer? They they profiled like a hundred and something movies and the Sixth Sense wasn't one of them. Uh, that's how under the radar this was and how huge it, w it, it was just on its own merits. When it came out, everyone's like, oh, my God, you have to see this movie. So we got The Sixth Sense. We have Unbreakable. Next is Signs, which I like. I love that movie. I get that a lot of people don't like it for a lot of different reasons. It totally mainly has the problems. It totally has problems. It definitely is, but I still love it. I uh -huh. thought it was super good up until the very end. Yeah. And I'm able to disassociate the ending with the rest of the movie because it's so good. Yeah. I know. I know. Mel Gibson. I know. But still. <laughs> and then after that, is it Lady in the Water? It's The Village. I love The Village. I know most people hate it. I never saw The Village. I own it! I called the ending to The Village, we're not going to say it here, from the trailers. Especially, I don't think it can be as effective when you have the reputation that at this point M. Night Shyamalan has. Okay. He's made three movies with big twists, and then he makes The Village, and you're like, 
oh, I see what's going on here. I didn't. <laughs> Admittedly, I thought the ending was a little dumb, kind of like Signs. Yeah. But the rest of the movie fall that goes up to that part is so good. Then it's Lady in the Water. Yeah, which to me, I consider it, I like its whimsy. It feels like... It's a Rald, fairy tale. It feels like what if Roald Dahl made a horror fairy tale, mm-hmm. you know, because it's full of just really weird, off-the-wall, bizarre stuff. But, of course, he writes himself into the story as the writer character who has the power, the great power, you know, like, because he's so self-indulgent. Yes, Lady in the Water is by no means an amazing movie, but I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was unique, and I liked it. Then... The Happening isn't after that. There's something else. Oh, it's The Happening? Yeah. Oh, The Happening is god-awful. The Happening is super bad. When we're talking about Mark Wahlberg being yeah. an M. Night Shyamalan movies, this is it. I mean, it's it's horrendous. And after that, it was like, oh, no, Shyamalan. Everyone, This is another one of the movies where everyone knows what the twist is, but we're not going to go into it. What a twist! After that... He did something before the visit. I don't remember what it he was. He did a few things before the visit. What? He did The Last Airbender. Never saw it. Which is I've heard a, it's terrible. a theatrical adaptation to the Nickelodeon anime Avatar The Last Airbender, which is a good show. The movie is bad. I've heard that. I've never seen it. Which is unfortunate. Then after that, it is... Is it The Visit? No. If I told you he did a father-son movie in the future... Oh, no. That's right. Do you remember the name of this movie? It's a movie that From came out Earth? and then after Earth. After Earth. It promptly fell off of the universe. <laughs> like it just the everyone forgot about terrible. it. terrible. I was like, oh my God, I don't even want that. Nothing about that seems interesting to me. Yeah, and I feel like if you wanted to make it a big twist, you could say, Oh my god, this is actually Earth. What a twist. But no, they're right they're real upfront with it right from the beginning. And because at like, this point, all M. Night Shyamalan has ever heard is stop with the with, with the twist twists. endings. Yeah, so Will Smith and his son, Jaden, land on Earth, and it's thousands of years in the future or whatever, millions, who knows? I didn't watch it. And, like, Earth has evolved to become a very dangerous place, and they need to survive. After that, he directed an episode of Wayward Pines. Of course. Yeah. And then it's The Visit. And I like The Visit a lot, I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I liked it a lot. It was really fun to watch, and it did get me to jump a couple times. Yeah, no, I I really like the visit. It's, I think my brother doesn't like it. it. Puts, I don't know why. It puts M Night Shyamalan's writing abilities like up on the screen for you to see. Where it's oh, he he indulges himself in these certain ways. He writes characters in very unbelievable ways, but entertaining ones. So he's not a very believable writer, but that's not really what he's here for. He's here to entertain you, not, like, make you believe him. But in between, so before The Visit, before After Earth, but after Last Airbender, he wrote the story for Devil. Oh, that's right. And I think it's funny that so many people I know really loved Devil. I didn't eh. like it. Yeah, It's kind of boring. Yeah, it's about a bunch of people. And you don't care about the characters because they all A bunch of people suck. that are awful. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is you need to find out, is one of them actually a killer, but they're all awful, and then it turns out one of them's the devil. What a twist. That's why it's called the devil. And devil. Yeah, it's called devil. You're right. Yeah. After visit is? Split. Yes. And it's funny because I feel split about that movie. Yeah. James McAvoy is outstanding in that movie. And his movies are very hit and miss with me, 
But in this, he is just like. Oh, he is so he's good. An actor, he is, he is incredible. Really, really good. The story, in my opinion, is kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. So that's how I feel. Split. And the twist comes at the very end, and it has nothing to do with the main storyline. Mm-hmm. So it like you know what? Do more of those kind of twists where it's like, oh, that's an exciting twist, but the whole story and my enjoyment of it doesn't hinge on the twist. I enjoyed it immensely because of him. If it yeah. hadn't been him, I don't know. I don't know if I would have liked it as much. Right, and then. In post-production now, coming out next year, is Glass, which is the sequel to Unbreakable. Excited. I So am I. And announced as a movie called Labor of Love, which I know nothing about. Yeah. But so that's M. Night Shyamalan. And he came out real strong out the gate. And then people got real tired of him real quick. And then he kind of disappeared for a little bit and stopped putting his name on things. And then... I think really his comeback came with the visit and then he did split. And now people are like, oh, we can be excited about M. Night Shyamalan again. I think maybe he's learned his lesson to like, you know, meet I think it himself. was the South Park episode. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> I hope so. It's so good. <laughs> All right. So continue on with the story, Kelsey. So he now has to help Haley Joel Osment. And Chris and I disagree. Do we? What are you talking about? About... Whether or not Haley Joel Osment knows as soon as he sees him that he is a ghost. Right. I think he figures it out. I think he knows as soon as he sees him because as Haley Joel Osment points out and as Donnie Wahlberg explained, you feel, and we saw it with the wife, you feel cold. Uh, you feel cold when? When they're angry. Right, which he's not when they first meet. But considering that Haley Joel Osment can see them, uh-huh. I'm sure that he is a much stronger sense of what they feel like (laughs) right but also like he doesn't really know for sure that they're dead until he sees like how they died or they talk to him or or there's some place they shouldn't be i understand that but when Haley joe osmond first comes out of his house he puts on his glasses he looks around he kind of sees bruce willis bruce willis looks down looks up and Haley has run away why else would he run away? Because he'd not, he's not even thinking about Bruce Willis. He's I'm headed off to the church to play in the pews because it's a place where he can be alone and he doesn't have to worry about, you know, disappointing his mom or he can get away from things. Uh, I think also that the dead tend not to congregate in churches. I think that's just something I read into it. It's why he considers it to be a safe place because it's this holy place. Um, but he's also very afraid of him when he walks into the church. I disagree. I think he's he's totally neutral with him. And I think over time he figures it out. Early on, sure. But I don't think right away. I think when he runs away, it's just because he's headed off to the church. We don't see him get startled and run. It's just, all right, I have my glasses on. I'm ready to go. I'm going to run to the church. You know, like that's just his routine because he does that all the time. I think also this is when I wrote down that it's easy to hide your main character as being the true mystery of the movie when you add extra mystery with another character the character that your main character is focusing on in this case it's cole and when we first see him and they first interact in that church he's quiet he's wearing glasses with no lenses he has cuts on his wrist he knows latin phrases and when he leaves he steals the statuette from the church and you're so focused on how fascinating this little kid is you're not focused on how odd 
Bruce Willis is and his interactions with the kid are because you attribute it to the kid and not Bruce Willis. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a really good use of character to hide the mystery that Shyamalan does. Yeah, it's it's perfect. So then he has a little conversation with him and they I don't really remember what they talk about in that first scene, but they basically just get to kind of meet one another. Then he shows up at the house and Haley Joel Osment comes inside and the mom and him are just sitting there silent. And you think that that's okay because the mom has a lot of problems. Yeah. She has been divorced. She's obviously got a son that's got severe problems. She had works two jobs. It's clearly, you know, not the easiest life. It's exhausting life. for her. And yeah. Her, her husband left... So when they're sitting there silently, it doesn't seem as weird. And when she gets up, when he shows up, she gets up and greets him, you know, has a little fun with him about what they did that day. What they wish they had or done. Or what they wish they had done, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, you know what I did today? I, uh, I won the Pennsylvania lottery in the morning. I quit my jobs. And I ate a big picnic in the park with lots of chocolate. And then I swim in the fountain all afternoon. And then she gets up and leaves, like, to leave him here to talk to the doctor. I would like to point out, this is, for me, this was the second movie I had ever seen Tony Collette in. I knew her <laughs> as Muriel from Muriel's Wedding. And it's a huge change. Huge. It is a huge change. <laughs> Physically, yes, but acting-wise. Yes. Um, I think she's incredible in this, and apparently she was only 26. I didn't do the math, but... That's like super young. So when she is talking to him, she she makes up this whole like elaborate thing about what she did. And it's really sad because then Haley says what he did and all it was was that he scored a goal and kids were nice to him. And you, yeah. can, you can see on her face that it pains her that like. Like that's what you wish for. That's all she that he wishes would mm -hmm. happen. What do you do? I was picked first for kickball teams at recess. He had a grand slam to win the game. Everybody lifted me up on their shoulders and carried me around cheering. And and it 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 displays what his life is really like mm -hmm. in in his head and and when he's interacting with other people. And we should say up to this point he has not revealed his secret to her because every time he brings up like he denies that he did something, she gets angry. And you know, because she's living a really stressful life and she's like, the only one here is you, Cole. Like, when her bumblebee pendant gets moved, she's like, I found it in your room later on in the movie. And she's you shouldn't do that. It could get lost. What could happen? And he's like, it wasn't me. And she's like, you need to tell the truth right now. And he says, it wasn't me. And she's like, you've had enough roast beef. You need to leave the table. And when he doesn't move, she screams at him to leave. Now tell me, baby. I... I... I won't get mad, honey. Did you take the bumblebee pendant? No. You've had enough roast beef. You need to leave the table. Go! Because, you know, number one, it's her mom's brooch, and... She has very strong feelings about her mom who died. And 
she's a single mother working two jobs, like you said, and she's living a really stressed out life because her son is showing signs of physical abuse that she's not causing. And there are things going on that to her, it's him being a pathological liar and acting out. And acting like, out. She comes into the kitchen and all the all the drawers and the cabinets are open. Uh-huh. And so it's to the point where he needs to disguise the fact that there are dead people around doing things by playing dumb. You know, he says, I was looking for Pop-Tarts. Yeah. So anyway, so she goes to make dinner and he's standing there and Bruce Willis says okay you know like i can read your mind he's just talking to him like he's a kid and he's coming up with all these things and Haley joel osmond refuses to talk and that's one of those moments where it's like oh, he this can't scene talk is to her out loud he can't talk to him out loud yeah because if he does his mom's gonna be like what the fuck are you doing out there hun he talks quietly to him at the end yeah the scene. Uh-huh. yeah so instead they play this little game where Bruce Willis says, how about I make a statement that I think is true about you? And for every statement I get right, you have to walk forward one step. For every statement I get wrong, you can step back one step. If you make it all the way to the chair, you sit down and we have a conversation. And he doesn't say anything, but he agrees. And Malcolm starts to get things wrong. Well, first he gets a bunch of things right. Yeah, he gets like two or three things right. And then he gets two things wrong in a row, at which point... Cole runs away. And he says, I was thinking you're nice, but you can't help me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What am I thinking now? I don't know what you're thinking now. I was thinking you're nice. But you can't help me. Because he wants, he wants help. Later on, we find out the help he wants is he doesn't want to be afraid anymore. Because he is just constantly in fear. And he doesn't trust anybody enough to share his secret with them. But he can share at first that he's just afraid all the time. And he just doesn't want to be afraid anymore. Because, you know, he understands that he sees dead people. But he doesn't know why. He doesn't know what they want. He doesn't know what they want to do with him. And so he's scared all the time. And he's constantly getting hurt by them. And we find out that one of the reasons why he doesn't talk about it to anybody is he found out real early on, oh, I am not supposed to be seeing these things. And he found that out because he made a drawing at school, which really upset everybody. He he says, well, what do you draw now? And he says, I draw dogs running. I I draw people smiling. I draw rainbows. They don't have meetings about rainbows. We're supposed to draw a picture. Anything we wanted? I drew a man. Got hurt in the neck by another man with a screwdriver. Everyone got upset. They had a meeting. Mom started crying. I don't draw like that anymore. How do you draw now? Draw, people smiling, dogs running, rainbows. They don't have meetings about rainbows. No, I guess they don't. 
so good. It's I'm sorry, but this is an incredibly well-written script. Shyamalan's best, period, hands down. So in school, we get to see a little experience about he he like Cole, his only problem isn't just that he sees dead people. Like he has actual like mental problems. He has anxiety issues. He doesn't like to be looked at, and this is what we see. Uh, when his teacher asked the students, hey, do you know what this used to be? You know what this school used to be? And he raises his hand and he's like, yeah, they used to kill people here. <laughs> and the teacher's like, no, I don't know who told you that. And he's like, no, they used to, to kill people here. He's like, no, whoever told you that is lying. This was a this was a, a, court a courthouse. There are lawyers and Which, judges and stuff. How a teacher couldn't know that they would hang people at a courthouse? Yeah, and or he's like, he's just trying to not scare the other kids, right? And I don't know. And he says to him, like, yeah, yeah, the lawyers and judges—they're the ones who hung them. Yes, Cole. They used to hang people here. No, uh, that—that's not correct. Uh, where'd you hear that? They pulled the people in, crying and kissing their families by. People watching, spit at them. Uh, Cole, this, this building was a legal courthouse. Laws were passed here, some of the very first laws of this country. This whole building was full of uh, lawyers, uh, lawmakers. They were the ones that hanged everybody. And, and so this teacher starts to, like, kind of mock him a little bit. Gently. I wouldn't say it's overt. Yeah, no, he's not being a total overt asshole but i'm sorry i'm a teacher he's being a bad teacher i would have never yeah. spoken to my kids like totally that. and so he starts he starts to get upset because he was going to shine he knew something he knew the right answer and he built up the courage to raise his hand and, and say the right answer and he knew the right answer because he sees the dead people in the halls and stuff like that and so he gets really upset when he's mocked for actually knowing the right answer and the teacher is wrong and he knows that and so he starts to get into the like don't look at me like that like he starts to get really self-conscious he starts to get angry at the teacher and the teacher is pulling this completely oblivious bs crap of i don't know what you're talking about i'm just looking at you and so he starts to get really angry and he starts to call the teacher stuttering stanley which they don't really explain how he knows they that do is it because of the girl, the burned girl? Yes. Okay, but at this point in the film... We don't see it because, and we'll talk about this later, we don't see any dead people up to this point. No, I know, but at this point in the film, as far as we know, and we know because we've seen the rest of the fucking movie, mm -hmm. he was too afraid to ever talk to them. So the idea... No, but she could be talking to him. And she just decides to say, hey, kid who won't talk to me for some reason. No. Did you know we used to call him Stuttering Stanley? No, but she could be in the classroom and saying, you know, shut the fuck up, Stuttering Stanley. You know, she doesn't have to be talking to Cole for him to know that he was called Stuttering Stanley. And so he just starts shouting it and shouting it. And the teacher starts getting really upset and he starts to kind of crack. Right. And he's like, you need to shut up, shut up, shut up. And he slams on the table and he says, shut up, you freak you know and he calls the kid a freak i don't like people looking at me like that like what stop it i uh, i i don't know how else to look you're a stuttering stanley excuse me you talked funny when you went to school here you talked funny all the way to high school what 
You shouldn't look at people. It makes them feel bad. How did you... Stop looking at me! Who have you... been speaking to? Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! Stop! Stop that! And we don't see the teacher immediately after this, but we know obviously something happened. That teacher got a talking to <laughs> uh, because he is really nice to Cole after this when we see him next. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's being extra cautious to make sure he's being very nice to Cole. Because I think he's really freaked out by that, but he probably also got told, you just called one of your students a freak and slammed on your table and just totally blew up in class. That's a problem. <laughs> so one of the next scenes that we see is of Malcolm showing up late to dinner with his wife. Yeah. And he, Chris brought this up earlier. She takes the, the, check. the check away from him to sign it or whatever. Now, I remember seeing this in theaters, and I remember thinking it's really odd that she won't even say a word to him. Because she's pissed at him. And, uh, right. No, I knew that. That's what we're supposed to think. Yeah. But also, she wasn't really showing that she recognized he was there. But a cool little tiny thing that Shyamalan did to, like... I know. I think I know what you're going to say. Evade that is someone laughs in the background... And she looks up and she happens to look right at Bruce Willis because uh -huh. it's the laugh comes from his direction. And that was when I was like, oh, OK, at least she at least she's recognizing that he's there. And then what does she say when she gets up and walks away? Happy anniversary. Like because she's really upset. Malcolm was with Cole, with one of his kids who he is dedicated to helping, especially now after he was attacked. And, you know, he's haunted by the kids he can't help. So he's so dedicated to proving that he can help this one kid that he misses his anniversary with his wife. And we should mention that earlier in the film, in the very first scene when we meet them, she says, you have put everything second, including me. Right, but at yeah. the time, she's saying it like she's proud of him. Like she's like, you know what? I accept it's, that. It's worth it now to see you get recognition like this. You deserve this. And I'm happy for you. But she's also acknowledging that... She's had to accept the fact that she's second in his life. So that's fascinating because seeing it now as an adult, it's like, that doesn't really gel. Why would he believe that she would be so upset about this if before she was okay with it? So that part doesn't quite gel. But then you have to think about the fact that from Malcolm's perspective, she has changed because if it weren't for his job, he wouldn't have been shot. They wouldn't have had that yeah. tragedy. And their that. relationship, they hardly ever talk now, as far as he's concerned, ever since that day. And then she starts getting closer to her assistant at her antique shop that she works at. So then he's talking to Cole again, and they're walking down the street. And he says something about, like, why don't you talk to your mom? Why don't you tell her about this? And this is the only, only scene in the whole film that I'm like, ah, eh, Haley Joel's kind of a little overacting here. He goes, um, because she doesn't know. I don't want her to know. He says, you don't want her to know what? That I'm a freak. Did you ever talk to your mom about how things are with Tommy? I don't tell her things. Why not? Because she doesn't look at me like everybody else, and I don't want her to. I don't want her to know. Know what? 
that I'm a freak. And he says it a little too fast, and I think it's him trying to portray nervousness, fear, mm -hmm. sadness, shame, and he doesn't quite understand how to put that all in there, so he says it really fast, and it just comes out like a little kid trying to act. Yeah, uh-huh. That's the only time. Sure. So then, after the kid has gotten in trouble with the teacher, he's like, you know, I don't want to talk to you right now. And so Cole, and so Malcolm tries to do this funny, stupid little magic trick, and Cole's a total dick about it. He's like, I didn't know you were okay. funny. That isn't magic. What are you talking about? Of course it's magic. Just kept the penny in that hand the whole time. You think so? I didn't know you were funny. So, so this is... This is a great little moment because he's put up these walls. Cole, as this kid, has put up these walls against this person who's pledged to help him, who he doesn't believe can actually help him. And he's really resentful. He's resentful about what happened in class that day. And so when it happens, he's like, that's dumb. It's not even a magic trick. And he's like, it's supposed to be funny. And he's like, I didn't know you were funny. And but then cut to Cole at this party. At his birthday party. And he's hanging out with the kid who was writing on the chalkboard. When, I will not hit or kick anyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's doing the trick. And the, guy, and the kid says, that was dumb. And he's like, it's supposed to be funny. It was dumb. Then you do the magic shake. The penny is moved from my pocket all the way back to the hand it started. That's stupid. It's supposed to be funny. It's stupid. I want my penny back. It's this really cute moment where it's like, no, he really did enjoy that trick. Like, deep down, he recognizes that it was really neat. And him redoing it is almost like this admission that he was being kind of a dick to Malcolm. You know? And it, it made it seem like he was a really adorable kid in that shot. And I love that moment. And he still can't be accepted by this fucking punk-ass kid. <laughs> so then he, of course, hears a ghost in this little room that's, like, up at the top of the stairs of this house. And you have to understand, this is this is Philadelphia. So the idea... They talk about this. The idea that there are many ghosts here that have been here for a very long time is believable because it's in Philadelphia. It's in a town that we... Uh, one of our first towns we ever had. So. Yeah. That's it's very believable. And he hears this guy whispering and then these dick kids who one of them is kind of a bigger character. We haven't really Tommy talked Tanisimo. about Tommy Yeah, mm -hmm. he, it's kind of pointless. He's just a bully. Him and this other kid decide to push him into that room and he immediately starts screaming because the implication is that the, the ghost that is in there is in there. Yeah, is uh -huh. hurting him. Uh huh. And they just kind of stand there and don't do anything. And it's really hard for me to believe that. And then she can't get the door open. And one of the moms comes up and she doesn't help her either. Yeah, and I'm like, I what know. the fuck is happening? I have to assume that she's one of the moms, but she's not the mom that lives there. Because I feel like the mom that lives there would be the first one to go to the door and try to open it up. Because this is her property. You know, like that's her... I mean, it looked like a door to a dumbwaiter or something, but no, it was like a little closet. Yeah, it's like a, a linen closet or something like that that nothing's in. Mm -hmm. So I don't know a lot about architecture in Philadelphia, colonial architecture, so I don't know what that was about. <sighs> but as soon as he stops thrashing around in there and he passes out, the door unlocks. And Tony Collette is able to open the door, his mom, 
and carry him out and they take him to the hospital. What happens at the hospital, Kills? Two things. So at the hospital, this is when we learn about the secret. Is that what you're talking about? Before that, Shyamalan makes his cameo appearance. Which he makes in every one of his movies. Shyamalan thinks Not anymore, he's though. He fucking, used to. But. Yeah, c- good, because I'm pretty sure enough people have been like, look, you're not Hitchcock, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he put himself in there as the doctor, and the doctor basically insinuates that she is beating her child because he has all kinds of marks that are unexplainable. I mean, as a doctor, he's in a really tough place where there are these unexplained marks. The parent denies it, but he wouldn't be doing his job if he didn't do his due diligence and pursue this so he gets a social worker to witness this meeting he has with the mom and then saying she's going to ask you some routine questions about this and she's really indignant there's some cuts and bruises on your son they're concerning me man yeah those are from sports you think i hurt my child you think i'm a bad mother mrs sloan over there she's a social worker with the hospital and she's going to ask you a couple procedural questions. What happened to my child today? Something was happening to him, physically happening. Something was very wrong. Because she knows that those marks are there. She knows that he's getting them. At one point, she calls up one of the other parents and says, keep your kid's hands off of my son. Hi, this is Lynn Sear, Cole's mom. Yeah, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to talk to you about your boy and his friends keeping their goddamn hands off my son. You know, because she thinks it's maybe the other kids being bullies to him. Uh, but she knows there's something wrong and she can't figure it out and she has no idea what to do about it. And it's a source of constant stress for her in her life. So to then get accused by a person in a position of authority, like, she just flips. She's like, no, I can't believe you're you're blaming me for this. And... But Stuff he's doing like a reasonable thing, though. Like, it's not of, like the doctor isn't doing, isn't being reasonable. That kind of stuff kind of bothers me because people get really indignant all the time. When if but they just... if we were right. just to just look the other way and say, oh, that's not my kid, not my problem. Right, he's Then all this shit would happen. So maybe we should start thanking people for being overdramatic. 100% the doctor was doing the right thing. But... It, she really didn't do it, so it's a really tough place for her to be in. That's that's one thing that happens while he's at the hospital. What's the second thing that happens while he's at the hospital? Uh, he's he's there when she gets accused originally, right? He's yeah, like, he's just sitting behind her. And when and when he realizes that where the doctor's going with this line of questioning, he's like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, and he <laughs> because he did say it earlier when he was talking to his wife, even though his wife wasn't responding. He's like. He's got cuts all over his body, but I've seen her. I've seen him with his mom. I don't think it's his mom. Yeah. I think it might be some kind of abuse. Cole has scratches on his arm. I think they might be fingernail cuts, defensive cuts, maybe. I don't know. Maybe a teacher or a neighbor. I don't think it's the mother. I've, I've seen her with him and it doesn't seem to fit. And so. Yeah, it upsets him because he's just like, it's not her. I'm trying to find out. I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. So. So while she's getting questioned by the social worker, he goes into Cole's bedroom. No. Or hospital yeah, room. Hospital room. Yeah. <laughs> and are you talking about the, the story that he tries to tell him? 
Or are you talking about the secret? He's like, do you want to hear a bedtime story? And he's oh, and he's really he, bad. He doesn't at know how to t- interact with kids because he's worked his whole life being a child psychologist, but or child psychiatrist. But he has never had kids of his own, and he doesn't know how to relate to kids on a human level. He just knows how to relate to kids on a doctor-patient level. Mm-hmm. So when he's just trying to tell this kid a bedtime story, he fails miserably. <laughs> and he's, it's very admirable that he's even trying to do it. But Cole's like, you haven't told a lot of bedtime stories in your life, have you? <laughs> and he woke up, and he realized they were still driving. This was a very long trip. Dr. Crow? You haven't told bedtime stories before? Uh, not too many, no. We have to add some twists and stuff. Okay. Some twists. Because you gotta have twists. Eh? Ah, oh my god, I never thought about that before. (laughs) What a twist! You gotta have twists and turns like maybe their car runs out of gas. Oh! (laughs) Fuck you, (laughs) Shamalan. It's anyway. at this point that he says, Cole says, I'm I'm ready to tell you my secret. Mm-hmm. Most famous scene has been made fun of multiple times. Tons of movies have made fun of it. And I get why you want to make fun of it, because now it seems silly and cliche. But I'm sorry. This is so well acted and written and directed. And the cinematography is great. Like, fuck you guys. Yeah, no, it's very, very good. As a matter of fact, Premiere Magazine rated this as the number 100 uh, movie line of all time. And that is... I see dead people. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see dead people. In your dreams? Did people like in graves and coffins? Walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. How often do you see them? good it's really really good i can't stress that enough it's just so well delivered you can see that he's terrified and he's also really cold do you notice and this is a moment when i think we can extrapolate from that knowing what we know about malcolm that malcolm's upset right now uh he's really worked up you know because this kid is going to reveal something that's huge you know and so he reveals that he can see dead people and he says things about them like they're everywhere. They're walking around like normal people. They don't they, see other dead people. They, they see don't what see, they want to yeah, see. They see what they want to see and they don't know that they're dead. Um, And Cole, I mean, Malcolm at this point is just kind of like, oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, oh, he has hallucinations. Yeah. like, And he's just like, it, fuck, his, okay. <laughs> his problems are deeper than I thought they were. Mm-hmm. But I've obviously connected with this kid because he felt comfortable enough to tell me this secret. Mm-hmm. 
So why, at what point is it that Malcolm believes him? Well, we're not there yet. I've got stuff I want to say. So Malcolm doesn't really believe him because why the fuck would he, right? Yeah. (laughs) So after that, as we said, oh no, I'm thinking of the other play. What's the first play that they all do as kids? What's the first play we see? Oh, there was a boy that lived in the jungle. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. It's basically and Tommy jungle. Tommy Tamasimo book. is the main character. The narrator. Yeah, the narrator. Yeah. So there's this play going on, and Malcolm is there to watch because the mom works two jobs. So she can never do anything that, like, outside of her normal hours. Yeah. So we don't even really get to see Haley Joel Osment in the play, but clearly he was in it. It's probably something that they all had to do. And. They're walking through the halls, and Malcolm's like, you know, I'd really like to talk to you about what you said the other day, and and the kid stops. And we finally get a shot. Oh, wait, have we already seen other ghosts at this point? There, there is, we see him at his house. We saw the lady who had killed herself. Yeah, and we see people walking by, but it's an important distinction. We, aside from Malcolm, we don't see a single dead person. We don't see what Cole sees. By the way, his name is Cole Sear. Waka waka. Mm-hmm. Until it's revealed that he sees dead people, at which point we see him all over the place all the time. Like the last half hour to 45 minutes of this movie is just dead people all over the place. Yeah, we saw a lady in the kitchen who's obviously the one that opens all the win- all the cabinets and drawers. She yeah. killed herself because her husband beat her. Yeah. We see a kid who's blown his head off, which, by the way, scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Yeah, I'll show you where my dad keeps his gun. And then he turns around and there's this big exit wound in the back of his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he's walking down the hallway with Malcolm after the play. And he stops. And then we see this horrible image of these people who are hanging yes, in the hallway. Yes, it appears to be a husband and wife and their child. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm comes back. And he's like, I don't see anything. There's nothing there. And Malcolm says, please make them go away. And he says, I'm working on it. I don't see anything. Are you sure they're there? Please make them leave. I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. And I literally liked that little moment. Yeah. It was really sweet because he doesn't believe that, that it's there, but he's like, I'm going to do everything I can for right. you. But meanwhile, back in Malcolm's life, he starts to notice that his wife's assistant is coming on to her and he's like you know keep walking dipshit or whatever it is that he says when the guy's leaving their house when she answers the door keep moving cheese dick and when for his birthday she gives him a first edition of some book do you remember do we know what it the book say. is yeah 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 i was paying um, attention it didn't and then they lean in to kiss all of a sudden glass breaks and it's because he hit the door and it's shattered and then he he runs off, you know, and he's all worked up and he's upset because he just saw his wife about to cheat on him with her assistant. And that's when he makes the decision that, no, I've neglected my marriage too much. I've put my career and these children in front of the person who's supposed to mean the most to me in my life. And I can't do that anymore. And this is bigger than I thought it was with this kid. That means I'm going to have to devote more time to him, which I just can't. If I want to save my marriage. And so he sits down and he tries to have a conversation with Cole about this. And he says, I can't do both. I have to focus on my marriage. I can recommend you to some fantastic psychiatrists. And Cole gets really upset. He's like, no, you were supposed to help me. 
Like, you were the one that was going to help me. And he says, you're the only one who can. Yeah. Which we know, after having seen the rest of the movie, it's like, you are a dead child psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> you're the only one. <laughs> Please don't leave. And it's also really interesting because basically he admits, I don't believe that you can see dead people. And Haley Joel Osment does such a good job. He says something like, I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. Like, do you believe me? And he's like, I don't know how to answer that. And he says, how can you help me? If you don't believe me. Dr. Crow, you believe my secret, right? I don't know how to answer that, Cole. How can you help me? If you don't believe me. It's so good. It's really good. So then Malcolm goes home, and even though he said he's not going to do it anymore, for whatever reason, he's listening to his old tapes of the Vincent Gray kid. Yeah. And this is this is when he um, God, what is it? He, he has some interaction with his wife, too, at home where she's ignoring him. But yeah, go ahead. And he's listening to these tapes. And he talks about on the tape, he says, you know, like, oh, it's cold in here. And oh, Vincent, why are you crying? Mm-hmm. So and he, he rewinds, rewinds. It he hears it again. He hears the it's cold in here again. He does it yeah. a couple times. And then he rewinds it all the way back to that before that. Uh-huh. When they're just talking and they're laughing and they're having a good time. And he gets and then a phone call. He gets a phone call, so he has to leave the room. And then we hear whispering. Yeah. And he turns it up and... And the numbers get red. We haven't talked about that yet. The, oh, the numbers all the on red the volume. stuff. Yeah, there's tons of The more of red he turns stuff. it up, yeah, uh-huh. suddenly the numbers turn red. Every time there's a ghost, the sound something, is peaking. something yeah. on screen is red. Yeah. And we hear this adult male voice speaking Spanish, and he says, I don't want to die. Yo no quiero morir. Yeah. uh Mm -hmm. Um, And so he suddenly just, and the music is so good. I mean, the music in this movie is amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. Every time in the very beginning in the opening credits and in this part, it's ramping up because it's suddenly like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Can they really see dead people? Yeah. So then he goes to talk to Cole again, and Cole's like, you wigging out? Because <laughs> Cole knows. Cole's uh-huh. like, you you figured it out, didn't you? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's pretty great. Well, we come in in media res where they mi- he might have told him about it, you know, and then he says, are you wigging out? So we don't know necessarily that Cole figured it out. Malcolm might have told him, but still. Yeah, he asks him, are you wigging out? <laughs> It's really cute. And then Malcolm has come up with this assumption. And this assumption to me makes no sense. I'm sorry. Because he says, I think they want you to help them. And Haley Joel Osment, for obvious reasons, says, what if they don't want help? What if they just want to hurt somebody? And Malcolm says, I don't think that's how it works. Who the fuck are you? To tell this poor child who's seen these things his entire life, oh, that's not how it works, kid. What the fuck? Well, because he's been scratched and stuff by these ghosts, and he's been tormented by them because he's... And they've physically hurt him. But because he's scared of them, he hasn't once tried to talk to them, and so... He's telling like he needs to instill confidence in this kid. So he's straight up lying to him, I think, and just saying, no, I don't think that's the way it works, you know. And plus, the only ghost voice he's ever heard said, I don't want to die. But the kid who heard it is freaking out and crying. 
And so that's like a microcosm kind of representation of what's going on with Cole, where he's being interacted with, with a ghost who is stressed out and has a problem. And even though the ghost isn't actually aggressive and doesn't want to hurt the kid, the kid is still scared and crying and disturbed and upset and has all the problems that Vincent Gray and Cole Sear have had. So he's like, wait a minute, what if they're not actually aggressive? What if all these times he's interacting with them, they're trying to get his help? And so he's trying that out. And the only way he's going to be able to try that out is if Cole actually gives it a shot. So he needs to give Cole the confidence to do it, to try it out. And so the first chance he has is with Misha Barton. So Misha Barton, this is before the OC. Yeah. (laughs) She's a little girl. And this is such a twisted side story that like, it's so small in comparison to the rest of the movie. And yet it packs such a punch. It's a a syndrome that adults tend to have. Well, they don't tend to have, but it tends to be adults have um, called Munchausen by proxy, where you get attention by hurting people that you have to care for. And you take them to the hospital and people are worried about you and how you're feeling and what you're thinking. And that's how you get the love and affection. It's the easiest way that you figure you can get love and affection from people and concern. So she's, we're, we're skipping quite a bit here that I really do want to talk about because yeah. this is such an interesting story. But there's a point that I want to make because it's a really odd juxtaposition, but I think it makes it a good point. So she was basically slow, not basically, she was, she was slowly poisoned by her mother yeah. and she ended up dying. And when you compare the fact that no one would have ever guessed that it was the mom making her sick mm-hmm. and if someone had if someone had been like wait a minute and according to the story they took the the kid into like five different doctors and they're all just like i don't know there's nothing physically wrong with her yeah if they had gone a little bit further if they had done their due diligence like m night Shyamalan's character did this wouldn't have happened yeah and, and so but earlier we were told that oh you know she's a great mom and how dare you say that she would beat her child but then we see what happens when you don't yeah and it's like i think that's the point they're trying to make but it's an odd juxtaposition because we are on tony collett's side yeah totally and we get we overhear conversation at the funeral which they end up going to um so he let, let's talk about this he cole ends up seeing misha barton's character and she's vomiting and he's freaking out about it but then he she stops. She scared the crap out of me too. <laughs> yeah. But then he stops and he comes back and he sees that he understands that she's vomiting because she's sick and that's how she died. And really she just wants help. And so what he learns from her is what's going on. Basically, there's something in my room that you need to get. We and, don't get to see any of this conversation. Right. Yeah, which yeah. I think is almost a bummer. I would have liked to have seen how the ghosts communicate because right. all we've ever seen of ghosts is them basically talking like right before they died. Like, yeah, cause the uh-huh. girl says, look what you made me do to myself. She had cut her, her wrists. The kid says, let me show you where my dad keeps his gun. And we see the thing. So I right. would have And the liked... guy in the, in the closet upstairs at that colonial house mm-hmm. says, you know, tell the master I didn't steal or whatever. 
I would have liked to have seen that interaction. And I guess a lot of people are probably thinking, well, Kelsey, you know, we get to see him with Malcolm the whole time. Yes, but he never treats Malcolm this way. I think also it would ruin the illusion. Exactly. And that's kind of a flaw here. Yeah. uh You, if I, after the movie, I'm like, okay, I would have liked to have seen this, but if I had, it would have broke the illusion. That's a problem. I'd like to think that she just said, you know... I live at such and such. I need you to go to my room, you know, and that's it. And then it just happens to be that they show up during her funeral and they head upstairs and we overhear people talking and they say, yeah, she just got started getting sick out of nowhere. And then she just didn't get better. And now she's dead. And now I hear the little one starting to get sick, too. And we know because Munchausen is is a compulsion. It's a it's a mental disorder it's a very sickening thing and so obviously someone here has a real problem and so cole goes upstairs with malcolm malcolm's with him they go on they go by train to this person's house and upstairs and he gets grabbed this is a perfect example of ghosts doing something scary but not because they want to scare you or they want to harm you it's the only way they have to interact with people i actually wrote (laughs) That grab, though. Yeah. <laughs> it scared me when I was a kid. He's walking by her bed, and, and it's a and nice touch. It's a medical bed. It's like a hospital bed. And an arm reaches out and grabs Cole by the leg, and he freaks out. But it's her, you know? And he pulls up the curtain, and he sees her, and she has this box, and she just pushes it out to him, and that's all we see. But what ends up happening is he comes downstairs. He walks right by the mom walks up to the dad and the dad's just not even registering that he's there doesn't talk to him and he's just like hey your daughter wanted me to give you this there's something that she thinks you needed to know and it's a vhs tape and he puts it in the vcr right there and nobody really pays attention to him and he sits down in front of the tv and he no, plays he starts to get a crowd no, no, he does him. but at the beginning nobody's really paying attention it's just him and this tape and it's a videotape of her playing with her dolls There's a lot of marionettes and dolls and stuff like that in her room. And she has this little box theater thing and she's putting on a performance and he's smiling and he's starting to cry and he loves his daughter. And then she hears somebody coming up the stairs. So she puts the thing away, but doesn't have enough time to turn off the video recorder. Now, this is where I start to get a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Are they implying that she knew that her mom was poisoning her? I think it could go either way. And that bothers me. <laughs> I don't I think, like that. <laughs> I think the implication is not that she was looking to trap. I think what happened was she found out because of that videotape. She was watching the videotape that she created and she saw that happening and she was keeping it for proof, but she died before she could show anyone. So why did she pretend to be asleep when her mom came in? Because she didn't know at that point. She didn't know until afterwards she herself watched that tape. No, I know. But why, just in general, why would she pretend to be asleep? Because she was up and around, uh, she was up and about doing something and she knew her mom would be upset if she was out of bed and would probably punish her. Remember, she wanted to go outside, but you know how you get sick in the afternoons? Well, yeah, because you're poisoning her lunches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see... She mom sets the tray right in front of where this camera is recording. I don't know where that camera was that she didn't see it, but she pours the poison into a spoon or into the cap, pours it into the soup, stirs it in and then feeds it. And I guess I just don't know enough about medical stuff 
But I mean, it seems unbelievable to me that a doctor couldn't be like, so the problem is <laughs> The problem is small doses, long periods of time. And you need to know you're looking for poison. So first you need to know you're looking for it, and then you need to be able to detect it. You need but to- But wouldn't you assume, I mean, I, like I said, I am no doctor. I do not know very much about- Well, I think if those doctors stuff. were doing their due diligence, like you said, it needed to be on the list of possibilities and they needed to test for it, right? But again, very small doses. She's very careful with how much she puts in. So it's worked through her system and she's really sick and the damage has been done, but maybe the traces aren't there anymore. And it's over a long period of time. Usually you're not poisoned over long periods of time. You're poisoned and you get really sick and they're like, oh, you ate rat poison and that's why you threw up, you know, or something like that. This you don't have. Again, I'm also not a doctor. I don't know. But she's she is getting away with it, partially through negligence, but partially because Doctors just don't know everything, and they can't know everything. And, of course, part of it is negligence, and they didn't even consider that as a possibility, or they ruled it out for some reason. We don't know. But the fact is, the dad now sees that the mom has been poisoning their daughter, and that's why she's dead. And he also knows that his youngest daughter is sick. Starting to get sick. Starting to get sick. And so now he knows that she's poisoning her, too. And we see all these people are standing up behind him. We just see their bodies because the camera is centered on his face. So we see their bodies lined up behind him watching this. And so now half of the people there know what happened. And they're all like, you can tell by the body language. That's they're like, super uh, uncomfortable. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they don't need to do anything because the dad's pissed and he's going to confront his wife, mm-hmm. and which he does. And she doesn't respond. You were keeping her sick she looks around and it cuts away and we see Cole sitting with the younger sister handing her a finger puppet and saying she knows that this was your favorite and she wanted you to have it and then he just never sees Misha Barton again mm-hmm. and that's how he confirms that helping people is how they're they able get to better. move on yeah and he feels better about this and it's from this point that there is a direct shift in Cole's life right things just immediately get better mm-hmm um, because the source of all of his problems, he's figured it out, mm-hmm. right? And now all of a sudden, you know, he's the star in the play. He's playing young King Arthur, and uh, Tommy Tamasimo is the, the village, village idiot. idiot. You know, well, it's quiet because, village idiot. <laughs> it's because the teacher put him in right role is being King really Arthur. nice because the teacher is also, I guess, the drama teacher, um, just like somebody I know. Which, by the way, I was like, dude, how do you have such good sense uh for a kid's show like this? But I mean, I know it's a private school, so they probably have more money than I do. But And he's he's backstage and chatting, having a pleasant conversation with this woman who we see is dead. She is in a fire. Yeah. And that's when the teacher says, you know, when I was here, there was a fire that burned down this portion of the building and they had to rebuild it. And he says, I know. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and and that's we that's what my assumption is why he knows that his name is Stuttering Stanley because this is that girl because it was when Stanley the teacher went Again, to school there. It's yeah. So what? It like why would that? Why would that be something specific that she says in front of Cole? And I don't know. So after that, we see him with his mom. Oh, we should talk about the fact that that's the last time he's ever going to see him, and it's really sad. Right. So. 
so it's revealed to us we we don't know until it happens on stage that he is the one who draws Excalibur from the stone and everyone cheers and all the kids carry him up on their on their shoulders and run around and Just then they like all what he said he wanted he to happen right happen yeah and then they collapse on the stage and everyone laughs and we get to see Bruce Willis do the most genuine laugh I have ever seen him do <laughs> in my entire life <laughs> And it's kind of weird looking. <laughs> he's, Bruce he's, Willis should just never look very happy. Because right, when yeah. he looks happy, it's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> you either need to be intense or sad or angry. <laughs> and then they have a chat in the stairwell. And it's obvious that Cole is feeling good. He's trying to balance on the windowsill. And he's walking around. And he's like, he's in a great mood. And he's happy. But he knows this means I'm never going to see you again, isn't it? Because I've now helped you. Because you took care well, of, the th- well, not he yet, helps not him yet, with the not final yet, thing. Not yet. This means I'm never going to see you again, because as far as Malcolm is concerned, he's done his job and he doesn't need to see him anymore. As far as the, as far as Cole is concerned, Malcolm needed a win. Malcolm needed to help a kid that had the same problem that Vincent had, and and that's that's why what he needed to move on. But also, he needed to understand what was going on with his wife and so cole gives him an additional little bit of advice some more help just try talking to her when she's asleep that way you can say what you need to say and she'll be listening and she won't even know it you know and so he tries it which if you really think about it it's like oh that doesn't make any sense yeah 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 (laughs) um but you know it's more to be therapeutic to malcolm because that's all that the dead person needs is their own therapy they need it for their benefit so they can move on, right? So it's not really that she needs to know. It's that he needs to tell her, right? So cut to Tony Collette and Cole in a car. But wait, are you going to talk about... That doesn't happen till the end. Oh, you're right. Cut to Tony Collette and, and, and Cole in a car. And they're in traffic. And there's an accident. And he says, I'm ready to tell you my secret. Which is... Virtually the same thing he I'm told I'm ready Malcolm. to communicate to you, with you. I'm ready to communicate with you now. It's really oddly said. I well, because it, it's psychologist talk. Yeah. And he says, yeah, there's an accident up there. That's why there's so much traffic. No, she, they knew that. Right, she right, right, knew right. that. And she says, I hope nobody's hurt. And he says, well, somebody was hurt. Somebody died. And she's like, how do you know that? Can you see them? And he's she like. She almost seems intrigued, too. Yeah, like, she's, she's like, like oh, can, can you see, see it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She wants to see the dead body. And he's like, no, she's standing right outside my door. And Tony's face, Tony's face and Bruce's face, when they hear that, it's just like, what? Right. <laughs> okay. And so so what she, what's happening, the same thing that happened to Malcolm is she's getting new insight into what's wrong with her son, and it's worse than she could have imagined. And to prove it to his mom, he tells the story about her mom, his grandma. But before you say this, uh-huh. Tony has a great, she gives some great lines. She goes, Cole, you're scaring me. And then he says something else and she goes, they? And uh-huh. then he says something else and she goes, you see ghosts, Cole? Like, <laughs> what do I She's like, do I know, what am I, I didn't know what to do before. <laughs> and now I really don't know what to do. <laughs> and so he says, you know that bumblebee pendant? That was grandma. She moved it. She wanted to apologize for moving your pendant because she just likes it so much. And she's like, no, that is not okay. You do not. Like, I remember 
a little personal story for me. My mom's aunt, her name was Melba. My mom's parents divorced when she was really young and she was raised by her dad. And her dad's sister, Melba, uh, was basically her mom during this time. And when I was maybe a preteen or an early teenager, Melba died. And she had given me a book of crossword puzzles. She loved crossword puzzles. And she got me really into crossword puzzles. And it really, really upset my mom. It was devastating to her when, when Melba died. And I couldn't find this big book of crossword puzzles that Melba bought for me. And so I went to my mom. Is that the one you have in the living room? It is. And so I went to my mom and I told her that I had lost this crossword puzzle book that Melba got for me. And I don't know where to find it. And I really want to know where it is. And that's the first time that I can really remember my mom snapping at me. Like... My mom's the type to get quiet when she's angry with you, you know, like she just won't talk to you. But like she sent me away basically the same way that Cole's mom did at the dinner table for the same thing, misplacing a possession of her mom's. And so like this is like this really resonates with me because it's I, yeah, it's a crossword puzzle book, whatever. But yeah, it's a bumblebee brooch, whatever. You know, it, it's it's more about the sentiment. And so she says to Cole, like, no, this is this is like really hurtful. It is not OK that you're going to blame this on the ghost of my mother. Like, I don't care what's wrong with you, Cole. You need to know that you're hurting me. Cole, that's very wrong. Grandma's gone. You know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Cole, she wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. So believable on her part. She does such a good job. Uh, and then he proves it to her. He explains that his his grandmother told him a story about Tony Collette when she was a kid. And how the grandmother and his mom had an argument before she was having a dance recital. And so the mom said, I'm not going to come see you dance. But the mom came anyway and stood in the back to watch, and she saw that her daughter was beautiful. But she never told her. And then she said, and then Cole says, also, she says that after she died, you came to her burial site and you asked her a question. And she told me that the answer is every day. What did you ask? She said, the answer is every day. What did you ask? Do... Do I make her proud? That's kind of the relationship also that Tony Collette tries to establish with Cole. That no matter what's going on, and no matter what the problem is, she will never hate him. She will never think that he's a freak. In this car scene, when he reveals that he sees dead people, she's like, you think I'm a freak, don't you? And she says the thing she says before. Look at my face. I will never think that you're a freak. You think I'm a freak? Look at my face. I would never think that about you. Ever. Got it? Got it. Like, that's, you know, really important. Which is a little 
because like if your kid was like a serial killer well extenuating circumstances (laughs) (laughs) um one of the reasons i'm very afraid to have my own child like right what do you do with that right My child that came out of me is a serial killer. Hmm, what do I? What does that say about me? I don't know. So they hug, and that's really the end of their storyline. And then we get the worst scene in the whole movie. This is the scene that blew everyone's mind. No, okay, that part's fine. I'm saying after that. Oh, okay, yeah. So. What Bruce Willis, the writing here and the music, it's like the only time in the entire film that I'm like, what's happening here? Everything's falling apart. So Bruce Willis goes back home and he tries out Cole's advice. He walks in and again, she's watching their wedding video. It's not the first time. The night of their anniversary happened the same way. So she's obviously really, really missing him. Missing the way they used to be as far as he's concerned missing the early days of their marriage and the love that they had for each other and really regretting where their relationship has gone to. We come to find out that, no, she just straight up misses him because he died that night. He sits down and he tries to have a conversation with her and talk to her about their relationship and about how important she is to him and how he wants to work on it and he wants to be there for her. And he, she says... What does she say to him? Why did you leave me? Yeah, why did you leave me? He says, I didn't leave you. And he's kind of confused. And then she opens her hand. And something falls out of her hand and rolls under the couch that she's laying on. Or the lounge that she's laying on or whatever. Yeah. And he sees that it's a ring. And then he looks at her hand. And she has her wedding and engagement ring still on her hand. And then he looks at his hand and sees, we see a shot, I think, of his hand out and the ring on the floor. Yes. And there's no ring on his finger. And that's when he starts to really freak out. And the music ramps up. And, and they suddenly he, he like steps back and he realizes that there is a book, like a thing with books on top of it in front of the, the door that leads down into the wine cellar, which consistently throughout the film, he's trying to open that door uh-huh, and he keeps, he can't. he can't, he's not used to seeing that table there. And as a dead person, he sees what he wants to see, mm-hmm. but he can't open the door because there's something in the way. And we get playbacks of um, things that Cole has said and moments of him and his wife. And they it's see what they really want to see. Good. They don't know that they're dead and it's really really well done and he he puts his hand he goes up the stairs and this is i think you don't like this he puts his hand on his back and he realizes that that's where there's the blood stain he turns around and he sees that's the blood stain oh no that's all fine yeah this whole sequence for me is excellent i think it's well done when I was a kid, my eyes might have popped out of their sockets because I was so like, oh, my God, he's been dead this whole time. Uh-huh. And it was just incredible. And then we get the last scene with him and his wife. I think I can go now. Just needed to do a couple things. I needed to help someone. I did. I needed to tell you something. You sleep now. Everything will be different in the morning. 
sweetheart. And we get this sappy little speech. It's really short, thankfully. But the music is bad. His acting is bad. The writing is bad. He and really quickly comes to terms with this. It's the last, like, three minutes of the film. And you're just like, this is the note you want to leave me on. And there's like... I think the thing is, is nobody's paying attention or they're already bought in because of the reveal. And he says, I think I can go now. And the music's oh, God, all... God, yeah, you're right. And the oh music's my God. all whimsical. And then there's this bright white light. And I'm like, what is this? What? Why? Why are they incorporating this? It was unnecessary. And then they cut to a short clip in slow-mo of them kissing while mm-hmm. they're dancing at the wedding. Super And then savvy. a film by M. Night Shyamalan. What I think, what I would have done, because I'm sure lots of people are like, well, what would you have done? I would have had him kiss her and that would have been the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all you need. You don't need this... I think I can go now. Right. Oh, but is he okay now? You can communicate that in other ways without him saying, I'm okay now. We didn't need the white yeah. light. We didn't uh-huh. need the music. None of that was necessary. Totally. Totally, <sighs> totally, totally. So, wow, we spent a lot of time talking about this really fantastic movie. I should say this is one of only four horror films to ever be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. The Sixth Sense in 99... The Exorcist in 73, Jaws in 75, and the eventual winner, the first horror movie to win Best Picture, Silence of the Lambs in 1991. So this so was what, the fourth one in 99. What won in 1999? American Beauty won that year. Oh, God. Anything else to add? Um, I could probably go back through and pick everything, but I think we did a good job. I think that's all I need to say about it. So Rotten Tomatoes, Kelsey, what do you think it got? 86. 85. So close. General consensus being that M. Night Shyamalan's Sixth Sense is a twisty ghost story with all the style of a classical Hollywood picture, but all the chills of a modern horror flick. I think that's pretty accurate. Kelsey, what do you think you would give it? I'm torn between giving it an 89 and a 90. I'd probably give it a 90 or maybe like a 92 even. I, th- I think this is an impeccable movie. I, I think, think it's it, very well done. It, it has obvious flaws, but I think that's okay. It's very, very well done. It's hard to see it from a perspective that hasn't been mauled by pop, pop culture, culture, making yeah. fun mm-hmm. of it and saying how bad it is. Totally. And pointing yeah. out all its flaws, even some that I don't think are real. Like, I don't agree with some of the things that have been said about this movie. But, you know, it's hard to ignore that and it's hard... I can't watch the scene where he says, I see dead people without thinking of Scary Movie. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Scary Movie, the original, is hilarious. Don't get me wrong. It's really funny. Mm -hmm. Or at least it certainly was when I saw in theaters and I was, what, like 14. But it completely recontextualized that scene for pop culture. And it uh has marred it. Mm-hmm. When I see that, that's what I think of. And that's a problem. That's what I think what a lot of people think of. I wouldn't be surprised if you show this to somebody who's in their early 20s, maybe, and they see that line and they laugh. I wouldn't be surprised. And it's so sad because Haley Joel Osment does such a good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I get why they made fun of it, because they wanted to just make fun of, fun of, of a huge successful thing like any parody. 
that being said, it is a fantastic film. And even if you hadn't seen it before, even if you didn't watch it when we told you to, even if you listened to this whole conversation, still go back and watch it. Fantastic film. Again, I'll say Shyamalan's best. Kelsey, that was 1988's Beetlejuice and 1999's The Sixth Sense. What are we watching next week? Next week, we will be watching 1989's Society and 2017's Get Out. What, pray tell, Kelsey, is the link between those two films? Rich white people. (laughs) (laughs) All right, really excited about that one. I've never seen Society. I've seen Get Out a couple times now, and we think that's very good. Mm -hmm. You should definitely stick around for that one and see it before we get there. Between now and then, you can reach us at podcemetery at gmail.com. You can send us comments, questions, um, hate mail, whatever you want to send. You can also follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. Until next time, as we say at the end of every episode of Pod Cemetery, I myself am strange and unusual. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Work, 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 Sinora, work your body liner. Work, 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 Sinora, work it all the time. My girl's name is Sonora. I tell you, friends, I adore her. And when she dances, oh, brother, she's a hurricane in all kinds of weather. Jump in the line, rock your body on time. Okay, I believe. Did we want to play the card game? Oh, where is the card game? Upstairs. Why is it upstairs? All the games are upstairs. Why did you move it upstairs? Because I was cleaning. But we need it for recording. So go get it. Okay, I will. She's just a bitch and I love it. I love her so much. What are we watching next week? I knew you wouldn't know. (laughs) The city of Philadelphia. There's just fucking ghosts everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty good, actually.